Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to tonight's call. This is a substitute host, Colin Derrick, again. It is 1-6-2017. So we've, we've made it. We've made it. We're alive. We're still here. The new brew has not run into the planet. Things have not blown up. Uh, we do have some radiation all over the world uh, due to the depleted plutonium weaponry that's being used. That's, to me, the most dangerous thing and not necessarily what we're going to talk about. It just came popped into my head because uh, its half-life is 16 million years. But uh, hopefully we can have a conversation about that. Right now we're having a conversation... Uh, Cheyenne is on, Money Mike is on right now, and we're waiting for Russ. So go ahead, Cheyenne, and share a little bit about the case. This, uh, who it is, what it is, as if we know nothing at all, because I know nothing about this case. I, I think I might have heard something about it. I think there was an argument I heard. Is this is this the one about where... Um, okay, uh, Colin, look at yes. your Skype. I just I, I you. I'm on a call. I'm, I'm doing two things. I can't, I'm doing five things as it is. Just share what you know, um, Cheyenne, please. He played it again. It's all there on, on your Skype. Yeah, well, we'd like to hear different people's voices instead of me reading it, because that's all I'm going to do is read it. Well, read why, it. Why don't you read it for us then, okay? Mike, read it. No, you read, read it, Cheyenne. I don't have my glasses. Uh. <laughs> Is this the one where Carl, Carl, it was actually his kid who uh, smiled and walked away and said, oh, yeah, is that the one that I heard that uh, the call where he was on? Um, no, this is, this is just what happened this week. But I'm asking about the case. Money Mike, do you know right. anything about the actual case? Oh, my God, let me see if I can open up Skype. Hold on, folks. I'm going to see if I can get this up on my tablet because my phone will. Mo- I don't think it does Skype at the same time. Let me see what's here. Okay. Let's see what we've got here. Now. And where are you, where are you, where are you? Cheyenne, here we go. I do have a case for those Canadians out there which uh, about a tax. It's a tax case. Okay, it's, it's the last one I just gave you. All right. Let me look. Scroll down. All right, hold on a minute. I'm also talking about this other thing which I'm going to share with people. I got, uh, you remember Vincent? He show, he was in jail for four months. You know anything about that? No, I do not. Okay. 
Uh, Waynesboro man gets nine years for child sex abuse. Okay. Wow, that's what he looks like, huh? Oops. Augusta County. Is that the last link I gave you? Yes. That's the one I want you to read. Wow, I didn't know they had those striped suits. That's pretty theatrical, isn't it? Hmm. I really want to... Well, that uh, apparently, I mean, that 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 phase is over. So now, uh, now uh, apparently, Carl, uh, Carl didn't apply the common law phase to it. Oh, okay. he, he had to go. He had to go the long way due to the fact of uh, Frank, you know, uh, conf- supposedly confessing originally. So he had to. You know, if he didn't confess, he would have been out right away. But because he confessed, you got to go the long way now. So he had to wait till all this was over, and then apparently he's gonna start doing his magic, supposedly. So supposedly, yeah. Okay, yeah. Um, Money Mike, I don't understand that part because Frank, without he didn't want to do a uh, jury trial, so he he pleaded guilty on what was it, Monday, Tuesday. Uh, Here's the funny part: the uh, the article that I read stating that uh, there would have been a trial coming up if he didn't do it. You know, there would have been a trial coming up. Anyway. Right, Friday, right, <laughs> January yeah. the ninth. All right, yeah. Frank. So here's the article. I'm just going to read it. Frank Russo was sentenced to 20 years in prison with 10 and a half suspended for molesting a young girl. Uh, Frank Russo, six day, played guilty to six charges each of aggravated sexual battery and taking indecent liberties with a child in a plea deal with the Augusta County Commonwealth's Attorney's Office. Russo was sentenced to 20 years behind bars with 10 and a half years suspended, giving him nine and a half years to serve. In November 2015, the girl, who was under the age of 13, told Child Protective Services about Russo molesting her. Authorities promptly questioned Russo who admitted to funneling the girl. Wow, they really make it sound like he just like, oh, yeah, I did it right away. I don't know anyone who does that. You know, it's just dumb. Um, however, in Augusta County, they don't, in other words, what they're doing is leaving out probably what he, let me see, it was 2015 in November, so they probably put him on a lot of heat uh, in order to get a confession out of him because even a guy who does doesn't admit it right away. However, in Augusta County Circuit Court Tuesday, defense attorney Michael Halahan said Russo confessed under duress, quote, to let them hear what they wanted to hear. He felt intimidated. But Halana admitted the confession would have been, quote, hard to overcome had Russo's jury trial slated for Friday taken place. If convicted on all 12 charges, a jury could have given Russo, could have given Russo 150 years behind bars. A thirteen a oh a thirteenth charge of producing child porn lodged after the victim told investigators Russo took new pictures of her was not prosecuted in exchange for the guilty pleas. Assistant prosecutor Alex Mendor said no pornographic pictures were found in Russo's home on Augusta Farms Road. An affidavit uh an affidavit to a search warrant filed in twenty fifteen stated Russo admitted taking pictures of the girl. Following his arrest, Russo sued a news leader reporter for wrong or of trespass and sought 
$1 per second, more than $80,000 per day, for putting, quote, forth into the public a telling that is not true, end quote. And Augusta County Sheriff Investigator also was sued for the same amount. Circuit Judge Victor V. Ludwig dismissed the lawsuits in early 2016. Well, what do you expect? In October, the judge allowed Russo to view the body of his wife after she died while he was being held at Middle River Regional Jail, where he has been since his arrest on November 2015. Wow. So it has been a year. Russo will be credited with the time already served. Okay, so that doesn't tell us anything about the facts. It just appears that uh, they asked him, he answered, he confessed, and then confessed. Um, I don't know. There's not even enough for me to pick apart in this article. Uh, uh, hold on a minute. I got a text from Russ. Looks like he may not be making it tonight. Gone it, Russ. Anyhow, back to um, the article. Uh, at the beginning, Pat, his wife, told him to say whatever they he needed to say in order to get out. And that's what the cops end up telling him. You confess, you'll get out. So he discussed that with Pat, his wife, and he got out. In the meantime, while he got out, he was at the home loading up the cameras, computers, phone cells, and the girl that he was supposed to supposedly molested was helping him. And within an hour, let's go with two hours, um, the cops came back and handcuffed Frank. Now, they told him if he confessed, he would let he would be let go. Well, why would they and say he's going to confess to a crime? We're going to let you go, but if you don't confess, we're going to keep you. Now that doesn't make a whole lot of sense, does it? That's what happened, Colin. The girl that was allegedly molested that told the police that she was molested was there at the house after she was being molested, helping him. Yes. Well, that doesn't sound. I mean, that, that those facts alone would certainly uh, refute any uh, anything that she might have said. The question: Why? Why did she say that in the first place? Did she in fact say that? Did she go to the police and tell them that she was molested? Did she sign an affidavit? <laughs> I'm. I don't know. <clears throat> I'm guessing she didn't. Well, it just doesn't. I mean, like, like I said, if I was a lot a girl, of this doesn't make any sense. Well, if I was a jurist and a guy molested me or touched me, there is absolutely no way. I mean, if I was a jurist listening to, about a girl who said that she was molested and went to the police and said she was molested, there's no freaking way that that child, almost, well, she's a young adult actually at that age, would go back to the same place and be assisting the same person who molested her, who she reported. Unless exactly. It doesn't make any sense. Exactly. So no, this has to do with the cops, the school, and then the cops. And that's what Carl was saying. Why would you allow the man who molested that child to go back home and load up everything while the child was helping you 
when he had guns and whatnot in the house, he could have just shot up everyone. And he didn't. He was he was told if he confessed, he would be let go. So he believed basically in their lies. Yeah, well, it doesn't make any. Yeah, they let them go until so that they can, you know, have the confession they want. So they can put a case together. They let them go for that day or a couple of days. Uh, now he's one hour. One hour. Well, they let him go for one hour. I guess they didn't lie. That's insane. But why are they out? The, the question is. Hold on a second. Here it is. The video. I'm watching the video. That's what the noise is you're hearing. My God, can those cops get any fatter? Holy shit. Do they even make clothes that big? How many yards of fat? All of them. Jeez, I could run backwards and they couldn't catch me. I don't know. I don't know who's on your call. It's still showing it's not online or not live. Well, it is live and it is recording. Didn't it come up and go... Dun, 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 live, right? Yep. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing that. It's it's not showing. <clears throat> it says right here, this recording has started. I'm looking at the board. Maybe that's the reason why other people haven't called in, because it's not appearing. Right, it's not showing that it's live. Yeah, Roddy, Roddy Kay's here, so that means all the other trolls can get on, too. Oh, well, I asked Rodney Kay to uh, help you out, because he's paying attention to uh, this case. Well, Roddy, you got you got something to add to this case? I didn't mute you. You muted yourself. Now, if this is not the case where Carl Lentz was yelling and screaming after being provoked on uh, my private audio, nobody knows. All right, well. I don't know. It's one of the, you know. It's one of those things that you really have to look at. The why. Okay, I'm going to ask a question. Why? You, you mentioned something that that they were trying to get other information. He was out, or he was trying to get. Anyway, what was the beginning? He was charged with something else, and they wanted they wanted him. Why did they want to go after him, Cheyenne? Martin K, you're in the call. Explain it. Rodney K, explain it. There, there we go. I here he comes. All right, have him explain it. Now's the time to contribute, Roddy. Wow, this is such a short article that will give any details. Nothing at all. I can't find anything about it. Nobody knows anything. Okay, well. Nothing like a right, dead okay. end. Share your experience with this case. Let me go back. All right. Um, if Jeff... If Jeff oh, yeah, by the way, Money Mike... Um, um, what's the deal on your call anyway? Is uh, from what I understand, you you can't get on, you can't record it, or you can't mute people out, or 
something to that effect. Um, my email, which I'll type in again, or in fact, Cheyenne, would you type in for me? Um, just give me a contact, and I can, at the very least, either stop it from coming on, because uh, it seems that it's the place for the fodder to come and, um, as one of them said, uh, what is it? Is there anyone? Is it? Oh, is there anyone else we can talk smack about? That's that's the quote, and uh, and that nobody. What was it? It's boring because nobody was on here. Meaning, nobody on here for us to attack. So, um, if you wish to help, you know, if you wish somebody to help you resolve that issue, either by stopping it from automatically um, uh, being turned on, so that people have a place to to do that, or um, we, I could just. Do, I can control the board um, while you do the show. Um, making that available to you. Money Mike, you there? Okay. All right. Well, uh, since this is, I finally got something that would be helpful to Canadians here. So I want to share this with you. Um, let me see. This is sent to me. Uh, by convince me, she says, um, the man fought the CRA for 18 years and recently won, quote, two extraordinary rulings. First, that the CRA owed a duty of care to Lerox, I guess that's the man's name, to deal with him in a non-negligent manner. And second, that the CRA had breached its duty of care by slapping Lerox with huge penalties for errors in reporting his income. Errors he did not actually make. Uh, for audio on the short version, I'll pull that up in a second. The CRA has a duty of care. They must treat him, the people, with certain level of care and with respect. Uh, the local newspaper goes into it. I'll pull that up. This is also an interesting read. Uh, recent cases where taxpayers have been awarded costs, the tax court gives the CRA a little tough love, CRA punished for abusive conduct. So that looks really interesting. Um, in Canada, let me see if I can find. Now, my response to this was, were they a taxpayer, in quotations, as defined in the tax code, or in reality, a non-taxpayer, as the court stipulated, are not subject, in parentheses, creations of the state slash subjects of slash to the state. If anybody doesn't understand that, I'll go ahead and explain that. In order to be a taxpayer, you have to fit the definition of something that's defined. Just because somebody calls you a jackass and you may be acting as a jackass, it does not mean that you have big floppy ears and a tail because that is going to be the actual definition for a picture in the dictionary of, of a jackass, okay? So this is something that, that is going to be repeated a, a thousand times over because we've been brainwashed to believe that we're literally created by the state or the queen or whoever else is in power, and therefore we're subject to it, them or whatever. And there can be nothing further from the truth because clearly um, it was your father and your mother um, who caused and the, and the spirit of our creator who brought you into this earth um, or onto the earth rather for you to have uh, as a spirit a physical 
experience, which is actually a wonderful gift. Let me go ahead and pull this up. And that the government is a creation of the people. And this is real simple. If you get rid of all the people, if everybody leaves and walks away, goes somewhere else, what happens to the government? It collapses. Now, remove the government, and what happens to the people? Not very much at all. Now, a lot of people believe that there'll be complete uh, chaos, which they relate to the word anarchy because they don't know what anarchy means. Anarchy actually just simply means without government, which means that you are self-governing, which is, oh, my God, that's why we have um, the whole concept of having a conscience. We are created with a conscience so that we do govern ourselves. And as we see those people that are misled by the Quran to kill other people, um, clearly is, is a, a mis, misunderstanding, clearly wrong. And this is the question I would ask anybody of any religion, anywhere, at any place, at any time, uh, is do you believe that God, Allah, whatever you want to call it, creator, um, uh, is uh, created everything? including you and your life and somebody else in their life? And the answer obviously is yes. So then is it not blasphemous for you because creator can certainly take that which is created and get rid of it with the blink of an eye, as I said, or even just the thought, all the water on the earth would just simply vaporize. With just a, a tiny little thought, uh, the sun could collapse. I mean, there's anything. Creator could do all sorts of things to eliminate as it says, he even knows the number of hairs on your head. Um, so if all that is true, then do you really think that God, Allah, Creator, whatever, needs your help in putting somebody to death just because you think that they uh, didn't do something that, that some jackass wrote in, a, in you know, rewrote something so that he could be uh, and molester and abuser and everything else. I mean, when you actually study this guy, Muhammad, you find out that he is just a, a nasty, you know, criminal um, and decided that he was going to bully everybody. And the best way to bully them is to and get people on their side is to, to write some sort of document and make it appear like it was uh, given to them by, um, by, by some god or another and even to create a new name. So... There's a lot of stuff in there. I've read some of it, um, and it's, it's very disturbing, the other parts and how they're actually interpreting it, but clearly it's not of God. So that's, that's for me, that just kind of puts an end to it, just like I have this concept about uh, if you go look at Roe versus Wade, um, which the reason I mention that is, for the, is this whole business about people and drugs and this, controlled substances and all this other stuff. The whole Roe versus Way is very clear and lets you know that the principle, the underlying principle was can government tell you what to do or not to do with your body? The answer was no. The incident was about abortion. Can a woman make a right to choose as to whether she is going to have an abortion or not? Now, my opinion is is that the um, pro-lifers did not use Roe versus Way in the proper way because Roe versus Way clearly says that the government cannot tell you what to do with your body. Well, it also means still that murder, no matter at what stage of life it is, now that's why they argue as to when, when life begins and when it doesn't, and that's, a, that's something that the court, um, in my opinion, uh, was mistaken on. Um, 
But the fact of the matter is just ask a pro-choice person, do you believe that everyone has a freedom of choice? Yes. Great. So then this child should be allowed to live naturally because that's how nature is. When you get pregnant, uh, things happen and you allow things to happen naturally that the child should be allowed to live until they're 18 years old and then ask them if they want to be aborted or not. Otherwise, you're trespassing on their rights to freedom of their choice to do with their body as they choose. So, um, you know, that's it's a, to me it's a real simple concept, a real simple principle, and I'm still waiting for uh, Russ to come on. Uh, let me see what else. Let me go ahead and look at this here, this case. Let me see. Just me one. Right, the newspaper goes into Let me look it up here. So it's a real simple concept that people would understand it. I guess it's real easy for me because I was raised on a sailboat for six years, and when you're out in the middle of the ocean, there's no government, uh, and you need to regulate yourself according to what nature dictates, which is if a storm's coming, you need to buckle down, batten the hatches down and close it so the boat doesn't sink. You need to take your reefer sail so that you don't get your sails blown out, which, he, which happened one time. And let me tell you, on a large ship, uh, she was 63 feet long, uh, 24 tons dry, with a 68-foot mast. Let me tell you, when that Genoa pops, it doesn't pop. It makes a huge, it sounds like a, uh, um, you know, like a, a cannon going off. Uh, sometimes you hear the whip. And in this particular, because there was so much wind, because we didn't take the sail down and put the storm jib up, it blew. And when it did, it just shredded. It looked like literally it was blown into a million little pieces, like dust. So you understand the power and what you have to do, and everybody relies upon everybody else's lives. And that's why you have admiralty law, um, where the captain has to rule, because he is responsible for everyone on the ship, and that's why he's the captain. But when you get back to shore, uh-uh, you step ashore, you're your own man. All right, let's see what it says here. Uh, this is the article. I'm going to read it. I'm just buying for time right here, but this is also for all you Canadians. How many uh, How many times have people wished... This guy can't even write. How many times? It should be times have people wished they could win against the tax man. Almost two decades ago, Irvin Lernix was a businessman in Prince George in West Coast, British Columbia, when he received an assessment. Oh, it's about property taxes. Excellent. An assessment notice saying he owed over 600 thousand dollars on personal taxes another eighty five thousand in goods and services tax gst along with interest and penalties verdict said the canadian revenue agency was mistaken and wouldn't pay that set off a series of events which led to confiscation of his assets and the bit and the bitter multi-year battle recently the british columbia superior court made a precedent setting decision in the case the battle was a costly one and in the past two, the Canadian Taxpayers of Federation, CTF, joined Mr. Lennox in his battle. Aaron Woodrick is the federal director of the CTF. Mr. Lennox was accused by the Canadian Revenue Agency, CRA, of attempting to defraud the system and was subjected to very heavy penalties. Subsequent financial problems associated with the CRA rulings resulted in default on loans and seizures of property. In initial steps against the CRA, he won the argument that the assessment was wrong and the penalties were reduced. Still, he continued his battle for compensation, saying the CRA was negligent 
and responsible for his lost assets and high legal costs. Along the way, somehow the CRA was shredded many what also shredded many of Mr. Lennox's original documents. On Friday, a three-year a three-judge panel in the BC Court of Appeal up, upheld a 2014 Superior Court ruling that the compensation argument was not accepted, but also upheld another ruling in the case and one of much larger significance to all taxpayers. In a precedent-setting ruling, they agreed that the CRA had a, quote, duty of care towards taxpayers and could be held liable for inappropriate action. God, this guy looks like he's like 95 years old, poor fellow. Not very happy. Um, Rather than appeal the decision further to a higher court in his compensation battle, Mr. Lernix and the CRA agreed to settle at this stage with Mr. Lernix paying $10 towards the CRA legal fees. Unbelievable. They'll bury you, they'll eat you alive is Lennox quote. Mr. Lennox, quoted by Global News, said of his battle, you can go through the system, but they'll bury you. They'll eat you alive. The average taxpayer does not have the funds to fight. While a bittersweet victory for Mr. Lennox, as he is still without compensation, many are hailing the decision as a landmark in holding the CRA accountable for its actions. The ruling indicates that the tax agency cannot intimidate and threaten taxpayers to any extent it wants and that it could, it should ensure that it is in the right it is in the right in its decisions before initiating actions against taxpayers in a CTF press release Allison Gray a partner with Bennett Jones wrote this, wrote at the time quote for Canadian taxpayers Larynx is a winning decision as it reinforces the CRA's accountability in issuing assessments auditing and imposing penalties the Lernix decision provides an additional check on what can and cannot be done by employees of the CRA in the course of their duties. And of course, I go after um, what are their duties? What are they? What are they allowed to do? What are they not? And um, I wonder if I can actually leave a reply here. That's interesting. So that's why I wrote: um, Is he in fact a taxpayer? Let me see. That's that as defined in the tax code. So not knowing whether he had a business entity uh, by and through the state, which would be subject to the state, uh, that uh, to me is what's going to make the difference. Let me see if I can get this to come up here. Still waiting on Russ. Okay. Uh, Dominion tax law. This is... uh, like a practice. Okay, recent cases where taxpayers have been awarded costs, the tax court gives the CRA a little tough love. Uh, introduction. Taxpayers appealing assessments from Canada, 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 gosh, I can't read tonight, Canada Revenue Agency, CRA. You know, again, here we go. Uh, it's just so simple. Does the man have any revenues uh, and is he part of Canada? The, the corporate entity, the business entity, the the uh, municipal subdivision, or whatever you want to call it, it's it's still a thing. It's an entity created by man. Um, so the CRA to the Tax Court of Canada, the TCC, they have a tax court. 
always face well-trained, experienced lawyers from the tax division of the Department of Justice, which obviously means how can they be coming up against the people if they are the Department of Justice? You see, that's an oxymoron as well. Um, this may seem intimida- uh, intimidating, especially since most taxpayers electing to go to court are unprepared to stand in front of a judge. Now, they come before the judge. The judge is their servant. They come before the judge um, or have no case and are simply stalling for time or are just taking the CRA to court for the hell of it to each their own. Yeah, right. Nevertheless, it is important to recognize that the CRA and justice are not unbeatable. In fact, not only did the CRA lose in a recent series of judgments by the TCC, they got slaughtered from a credit union litigating very complex issue to the stay-at-home mom taxpayer. Now, that doesn't, that right there is a contradiction in terms. How can you be a stay-at-home mom and a taxpayer? Have succeeded in courts while the CRA has been taken to the woodshed. The court has mechanisms in place to ensure that the most successfully litigate, lit, lit, the cost of successfully litigating an issue will not be entirely coming out of the pocket of the taxpayer. Moreover, the TCC has begun to recognize a significant role cost play in tax litigation. In a welcome departure from the tax court's traditional practices, the judgments discussed below highlight cases where taxpayers were not only successful against the CRA, but were also awarded costs. Awarding costs. As with any type of litigation, taxpayers have to expend resources if they want to fight for their rights in tax court. And I read to you guys, um, I believe it was last week or the week before, a quote from one of the cases here that clearly stated that the non-taxpayer is not required to pay the taxes under protest and then turn around and make a suit to get it back. Um, The opposite is true. It says it may, I'll, I'll read it to you directly, but it it says he may stand upon his constitutionally protected rights to not pay and to get a injunction to prevent uh, whoever's trying to collect from collecting anything or taking anything of this. And that's the way you need to do it. You need to get an injunction first. So the moment you get a notice, here we go with, with process and procedure and strategy. What I took from that case was that you need to do the injunction yourself, uh, much like you have to do the same thing with a in a non, um, what do you call it, judicial foreclosure state. So as a result, you need to bring the suit early, which means you need to get educated in law early and get your facts and make sure you're the one who's the attacker because uh, you have reason to believe that they're about to do something. Remember, an injunction is to enjoin or prevent somebody or something from taking an action. If it's already happened, you can't do an injunction. You have to now undo what's been done, and that's more difficult in most cases. So there's number one strategy is learn the law first and go after them. And here's another thing, which I mentioned before, and for these purposes I'll raise it again, is that when you raise the issues, make sure you list them succinctly and have um, supporting cases and law in order to make your point so it's not your point, it is actually a point in law. So, And the second thing is, when you raise the issue, don't let them, and there's a case, uh, hopefully I can find that, where it talks about where they had hijacked, and the court 
admonished them and said that the attorneys cannot hijack somebody's case and bring up issues that they didn't raise. So that's when you want to object. It's an objection, uh, irrelevant immaterial. That's not the issues that are being raised. So, for instance, if you were to simply getting an, a, um, a declaratory uh, judgment on the definition of taxpayer and whether, you're, whether you, and, the, and there you go, are you acting in the capacity of taxpayer? So you see how you can clarify this. I, man, am always going to be a man, but I act in different capacities and I have different personas or persons. The question is, is there such a person that I am either employed by or the surety of that is a taxpayer, in fact, that I'm obligated to pay the taxes on behalf of that? Because as a man, as man, it is impossible for you to ever be a taxpayer uh, or to be a person as defined in the tax code um, in that capacity. And we've kind of been going back and forth and I don't see Jeffrey on the night, so we don't really need to have the, the, the argument. Um, I, w- I was going to back it up and say, if everybody was a person, which in common use that may be true, um, oh, he's a really nice person, she's a really nice person, or he's a mean person, that's, we're, we're talking about something different. We're talking about statutes and law here, and they're defining them, and they clearly define them. And as we, as in his video, if you go look at his video, he's debunking, uh, my perception of what person is. And so um, if you remember, was it last week or the week before? I think it was, yeah, it was last week. We got sidetracked in uh, Red Shea's uh, whole uh, case about being held in contempt, which revealed quite a bit. But um, again, going back to respond to him, um, he went and did a little bit of research, his homework, and he looked up and, and realized that I left out the term individual, which is the first term uh, that is used in the definition. When it defines person, it says individual, comma, uh, was it fiduciary, comma, um, trust, partnership, limited liability company, corporation, and any municipal subdivision of the state. And again, please note that any municipal subdivision of the state is a taxpayer. And that should ring some bells for people right there. Well, wait a minute. If they're a taxpayer, how is it possible that a taxpayer is taxing me? Are they licensed? You know, are they licensed to collect taxes? And it's fun to do things like that. I've, I've done that a couple times. Like one time, uh, I think it was, what's that place, 99 cents or $9.99, whatever it was, pizza. And when it came up to 10-something, I sat there and said, whoa, what's this? It said nine, right there, nine ninety nine. And I said, oh, well, that's taxes. And I asked him, are you licensed to collect taxes? Well, finally the manager came out. Guess what? I didn't pay any more than nine ninety nine for that pizza because they're not licensed to, as tax collectors, just like most of these other ones are not, the courts are not licensed as um, debt collectors. So they're acting in a capacity that they're not authorized to act in. And this is, this go, this is always at the root of everything, people acting ultra-virus of the office, but they don't know because they've never read it. So when you read it, you go, hey, wait a minute, you can't do that. They're like, oh, yes, we can because we've always done it this way. And you have to shut, basically shove the law right up where the sun don't shine. So my, my point, and continue here, that um, if, uh, oh, so in the, in, the, in the Oklahoma, in that case, uh, where it says individual, the very next line it defines individual is natural person. However, it's the same trap that I set for the um, uh, state's attorney who was there representing 
I was I was the the, uh, the petitioner plaintiff or what I forget what I called myself there and what capacity not myself but what capacity I was acting under. So you have to change my wording as well. Um, so um, you know they were the defendant, and so they had the state's attorney come in there and. When he brought the same issue up, he goes, oh, Your Honor, he's failing to mention that it says individual. And I said, well, hold your panties on. Don't get them in a wad. I said, the very next section defines individual as natural person. And if you go look it up, natural person means, you know, generally to most people, it says human being. So there's all sorts of arguments about that. But let's go ahead and say that perhaps it is talking about man. But the fact that there is a separate section, otherwise to save on ink and paper and confusion, it would have said person. It's defined as natural person, comma, uh, fiduciary, limited liability company, corporation, and so on and so forth, right? And it didn't do that. So the reason that it separated was because natural person in here, after person had already been defined as fiduciary, limited liability company, corporation, or municipal subdivision of the state clearly meaning that there is man acting in the capacity, right, of a person or limited liability company, corporation, partnership, and so on. So it becomes very clear. And he just stood there and was like, oh, 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 oh crap. You know, there's no place for him to go. And he stomped his feet with, oh, he refused to pay the taxes. Upon which I responded, oh, I'm not refusing to pay any taxes. I'm just requiring you to provide me the law that requires um, me uh, to pay those taxes, and you know, they, he couldn't go anywhere with it. So, I would also respond after his secondary video on there. The fact is, it the court uses a term, and I've seen, I've seen, I presented you one case, and I've actually seen it in another one since. The term non-taxpayer, which is the non-taxpayer, is not subject to the state, okay, the tax code, because he's a non-taxpayer. And only taxpayers are subject to the tax code. The reason I say that is because the next thing the attorney said, well, he failed to challenge it when he had time to do it according to this section, da-da-da-da-da. Okay? Thus, it makes real... I said, well, hold on a minute. And I, re, and I quoted the, the, um, the, the case uh, that it said clearly the non-taxpayer is not subject to the tax code because only the taxpayer is subject to the tax code and as the court says, he may stand upon his rights secured by the Constitution. He is not required to pay the tax under protest and then turn around and bring a suit to get it back. He may stand upon his rights, his, uh, rights as con- uh, secured by the Constitution, and he may bring an injunction or declare declaratory judgment to enjoin uh, the state from taking his property. So that's very, very clear. Now, I would say, well, I did all that so I could say this. If everyone was considered person as defined under the tax code, then there would be no such thing as a non-taxpayer, would there? Okay? So the fact that there is a case that clearly describes what a non-taxpayer is and what it isn't, uh, and that he is not subject to the tax code then clearly it means that not every human being or every man is a person and thus a taxpayer. So that, that, that term would no longer would not exist anywhere. So that's evidence 
in my mind anyway, that there is a difference between a person and man, particularly when they define it. And if you go look up a million cases, which would tell you anytime dealing with statute or law, that if they define something, that it is limited and only to the exact and precise definition, cannot be elongated, cannot be misconstrued, and they even go on to say, nor can the courts presume that had the legislature, in other words, if some kind of incident happened, that they believed the legislature had not considered, um, that they cannot then turn around and say, well, if the legislature knew this, then they would have done that. In other words, that's why we have the separation of powers, because the legislature makes the laws, the courts can only uphold the laws. They can't create laws, misconstrue it, and so on. So it's very, very distinct what they're doing. That's why it's so important for them to to be specific about everything they're doing. Just as I mentioned, uh, one show where I was reading uh, 46.2, the Motor Vehicle Code in Virginia, where each and every single time you can see where it said motor vehicle, comma, trailer, comma, tractor, trailer. So it only applied to those things that even though they defined uh, moped, motorcycle, uh, bicycle, and so on, it was very clear that it, it, that they were only in this particular section, in this particular section, in that particular section, it only applied to motor vehicle, not a vehicle, but a motor vehicle, okay? Uh, trailer and tractor trailer, which are, each one of those are separately defined. Um, well, let me see. Guest aid is awesome. Where's guest aid? Well, he's not on the call. Didn't call in. You got to call in? You want to be heard. Um, let me see what's this. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, going to the, I've, you know, the Bible is nothing, you know, uh, the foundation, and when you go back in, uh, in the history, you can see, um, uh, you can see very well that uh, most of these concepts and principles are based on, on the Bible. So that's why, you know, and, and here's an interesting thing. What law preceded which law, which is a superior law? You know, this is really interesting. You have a, a group of people uh, that got together and decided that they were going to create a government. Um, and in this particular, uh, these men who had seen an awful lot were well learned um, and studied and understood corruption quite well. Uh, after all, they were putting their lives on the line Literally, I mean, they were coming up against the most powerful navy, the most powerful armed forces in the world at the time, uh, with a little ragtag band of, of of men and women and who whatnot to try and um, get their own liberties. Uh, so they clearly had a strong belief about it. And when they wrote it, uh, uh, they put it together was in order to secure these rights. They were very clear. And that's why... Um, I think everyone's missing the mark, in my opinion. I'm working on my own case here. I had an attorney tell me the other day, he was kind of like almost stomping his feet, too. Uh, this is in a, a private private place. You know, it wasn't anything having to do with courts. And um, uh, he said, well, I've never heard anyone uh, bring that up in a case, uh, the unanimous declaration of the 13 United States of America in Congress assembled. So if you're going to use the unanimous declaration of independence, which is the founding document, make sure that you say in 
Congress assembled because that was the first act that Congress did. Uh, then, uh, so and so that's where you understand that they put it into a trust. They created a trust. That's why it's called an express trust. They expressed it. Um, you know, they declared it. That's an expression. They expressed the trust, and they said what the foundation of, of all governments are, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men. So it's very clear that the purpose of government is to secure these rights, not to oppress the people. Uh, uh, let me make more. Let me see what's, what you're saying here. I'm trying to read here. Went to another topic and he and he yells at me. Uh, to those who believe that law is just an opinion, would it make more sense that a rule would be better followed? Uh, well, I think Cheyenne said it. It's all under color of law. Um, if you follow the law the way that they are misrepresenting it, uh, yeah, you you don't have as many troubles, but your kids will have trouble because then they continue to impose, and it becomes law in fact. So in the same way that you need to object to everything and anything in any court case uh, from the beginning is so, to me, is the same here. That when, they mis- when, I, when a servant misapplies the law, you're supposed to manage them. Just like if you had a maid come into your house and they were using the broom the wrong way, would you not correct them? If you were at McDonald's and you found a big, huge cockroach in the middle of your hamburger, would you not say or do something about it? Yes, you would. And who would you go to? Would you go to the cook or would you go to the manager? And this is one of the biggest mistakes I I believe people are making is they keep wanting to go after the one who did the action and not the principal. And that's, that's... wonderful protection for them because they become uh, the fall guy. But they're doing what they were instructed to do or what they were uh, trained to do. So uh, not in all cases, but usually you can find that it is, in fact, a policy of the state um, for them to do things. And, again, if you go look at the Trazavant case, which I've offered, and I haven't had anybody ask me for it yet, which is really amazing, and makes me wonder if people are serious about winning or not, or they just want to complain, um, you know. And I think this is what Carl keeps talking about: is you know, be a man. Man means to stand up. You don't let somebody walk all over you, your house, or your pets, or your or, or the people in your house. And yet, that's what people are doing. And just because they're wearing a badge does not mean that they have the authority. That's why you're required to know the law yourself, so that you can manage them and regulate them and bring an action against them when they fail to do it properly or they act ultra-virus of the office. And it's been a fascinating trip for me in the last four years or five years now, uh, and I am amazed at how many cases have already uh, addressed most of these issues. Um, One example of outright, in my opinion, criminal acts um, that that some of these judges are doing on these fraud closures is after the uh, Janowski case um, and went to the Supreme Court where they said that rescission is effective upon nailing it, um, yet the courts are saying, oh, no, uh, there's no question that you have to do, um, what's it called? Um, 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 what is it called? Not presentment. What is it called? 
uh, tender. The old tender rule. You have to tender payment in order to get out of the contract. Well, it just doesn't make any sense. Okay? It's not what the Supreme Court says, and it's not what Tilla says either. Okay? It says clearly, and the court, you know, upheld it, that upon mailing of notice of rescission, that it is effective, which means they have to return, they have to unwind, they have to return all of the payments, the down payments, and, and reconvey the property and everything else to put things back how they were at the beginning. Um, and that's that. They can, they have 20 days in which to do it, and if they fail to do it, then there is a way um, through the TILA that within one year you can bring an action for them failing to do so. Uh, and get and get penalties, additional penalties there. does not mean that because they haven't done it that you can't still 20 years later um, sue them for failing to do it. It just means that um, within the one year under TILA um, that they you can be penalized, that's all. You can penalize them and collect under TILA, but you can bring in action under different things as well. Um, so now we, I've read a couple of cases, and the judges are completely misconstruing the law, and the cases that they quote uh, were not cases at all. They were quoting their own words. They create their own words, and then they quote their own words, which is not in law. And I'm going to read something to you here in a second that illustrates this so beautifully. Um, but I got a little sidetracked here. Let me go ahead and keep reading here. Uh, let me see. This is about the TCC. Let me see. Where was I? As with any type of litigation, taxpayers have to expend resources if they want to fight for their rights in tax court. The court set, sets out a schedule of fees called tariffs, which lists certain expenses taxpayers can recoup based on the amount in appeal stage of process, proceeding, etc. Traditionally, the costs that have been awarded by the tax court to a successful taxpayer have been no more than a small fraction of the out-of-pocket costs actually occurred in pursuing the appeal, which makes no sense. Again, why is there inequality here? However, um, the TCC has begun to depart from this rigid structure in certain circumstances and has total discretion in terms of the amount of cost, the allocation of cost, and who must pay them. Now, what that tells me is that you're in the TCC. Instead of getting into another court and suing the TCC itself, along with the, um, the, the uh, tax collectors here, the, what do they call it here? The CRA. See, that's how I would do that, because the TCC has complete jurisdiction and, or complete, what they thought, discretion uh, in these matters, because they believe, again, that would be, that sounds like an administrative action that you are part of their administration, uh, or the, they believe that you are subject to an entity that is part of their um, their administration. And that's, that's why you want to attack that early on, is what evidence do you have that I was created by you, I'm subject to you, I'm not, or that I have, in actual fact, it always has to be you have uh, something, um, or you hold an office of something that was created by, or through, or under, and therefore subject to. Uh, factors to be considered by the TC in, in, in exercising this discretionary power include the result of the proceedings, the amount in the issue, the importance and complexity of the issues, settlement offers, 
the volume of work, conduct that shortened or unnecessarily lengthened the duration of the proceeding, the denial, neglect, or refusal to admit anything that should have been admitted, whether any state, whether any stage in the proceeding was improper, vexatious, or unnecessary, or taken through neg- negligence, mistake, or excessive caution, and whether the expenses to have an expert witness was commensurate with the nature of the proceeding. Additionally, the TCC may consider, quote, any other matter relevant to the question of cost, end quote. This gives the TCC even broader discretion to consider other factors it thinks relevant in a case-by-case basis. CRA punished for abuse of conduct. The Martin case was won by my former colleague, David Piccolo, and articulating student, Jonathan Kringle. Moreover, my buddy, Rob Madden, had the file when it was originally at uh, Thorntonson's LLP. The, in parentheses, the tax bar is a small, small world. The appellate in this matter, Mrs. Martin, was reassessed by the CRA under Section 160 of the Income Tax Act for having received assets from her late husband while he owed a tax debt. Her position was that she provided services to her late husband's dermatology business, okay, so there was a business, and also owned the building that the practice operated in but did not receive rent. Therefore, she clearly provided fair market consideration for the assets she received and thus Section 160 did not apply to her. The issue arose due to the conduct of the CRA. Back in 1994, a CRA auditor informed Miss Martin of her late husband that, uh, and her late husband that he could not pay her a salary for the work she did as his receptionist and bookkeeper and could not pay her rent either. This is, this is was, and always will be utter hogwash. Moreover, uh, the CRA has acknowledged that the taxpayer was, quote, misinformed by the auditor. As Joyce Boyle noted, the fact that she was not paid fair market consideration for her work and proper rent not only increased her husband's tax bill beyond what was his legal obligation, but also adversely affects, affected Mrs. Martin's capacity to save for retirement and CPP benefits. Now, this is, is beautiful because if you remember a couple of weeks ago, I addressed exactly this issue that a lot of people get an LLC, they create an LLC or other types of business, and they fail to pay them pay the, 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 the man or woman who is providing services. So if, you have, if you're wearing many hats, you have the right to be paid for each one of those, as it's stated right here, because it is a business entity that is getting or receiving some kind of consideration, some kind of services, and the business must pay for it. So if you're acting as the president, you need to get paid for it. If you're acting as the bookkeeper, you need to get paid for it. What is it uh, she provided? What was it? Bookkeeping and secretarial services. So those are two positions that she needs to get paid for. Okay? And now exactly what it said here. That once you pay them, it becomes a deduction off of your gross, quote-unquote, income. And now the taxable income, the net income, is reduced. And in most cases, you'll find that you're actually going to be in the red. So this is beautiful. This is perfect. It's now confirming. Thank you, Creator, because I just love it when 
Um, what I shared um, as a principle and concept out of my own mouth now is confirmed here uh, by one of those um, attorneys, uh, um, clearly certified, notarized, legalized, and everything else, and, and there it is. Uh, however, the CRA inexplicably continued to fight the case that she did not provide, quote, fair market consideration for the property transferred to her all the way to trial through three different law firms. In this judgment, Justice Boyle cited a previous decision where he stated, quote, there are perhaps some arguments and some cases that the Canadian Revenue Agency just should not pursue, end quote, because it, it amounts to abuse of taxpayers. Sure, the Crown has to see the law enforced, but there are also instances where the government should not only know that they are in the wrong, but more importantly, know that the taxpayer has the evidence to prove it. There you go. That's why you need to keep your records. This was one of those cases where the CRA stubbornly refused to admit that, it, that they were wrong and persisted with going to trial. And Justice Boyle was not, uh, was not afraid to say it. The case reported by Justice Boyle was in respect of the hearing for costs. The Crown thought that the taxpayers should get their costs according to the standard tax court schedule of costs. The taxpayer argued for solicitor and client costs, basically everything, and considering she had spent a staggering amount, at least $80,000, fighting a case that never should have happened, this may have been appropriate. Now, I've got the same thing in the, in the uh, Oklahoma case where, where I was asking just for my paper, the amount that I spent on paper um, and other actual, actual costs, not my time, not an attorney's time or anything else would be reasonable attorney costs, none of that, and the court denied me. Um, so, you know, at some point, maybe I'll pursue it. I've got more bigger fish to fry right now, to be honest with you. But it is, and it, there's that, and there's all, also for the people who've actually read my case, um, you can see where the court has overstepped its bounds because there's absolutely no provision where uh, um, uh, it would make any difference in the outcome of the case if they reinstitu- reinstituted um, their, their, um, uh, their status as a suspended corporation because the OS-1212 is very clear that um, anything that is done while it is suspended is considered a misdemeanor. Now, you can't all of a sudden reinstitute and it, it, what you did or what happened during that period of time is now all of a sudden just done away with, and that's how they're misconstruing it, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to give an opportunity for them to come after me again if they reinstitute, which is not true when you read it. There's no provision for that at all because while it is suspended, it is not acting as a corporation. It does not exist in law. It cannot then turn around and come back into existence and say, oh, we were in existence all during that time. No, you weren't. You were suspended for that period of time. Just like, uh, let's give an example, and and it's a bad example, but I'm going to use it. Uh, Let's say that you're a driver and you have a driver's license. Okay, we'll make it clear. And you are engaged in transporting a passenger property for compensation over the highway. And your driver's license is suspended. While it is suspended, you get some sort of a ticket. I don't know what it would be. Uh, probably the only thing would be operating without a license um, uh, or operating without insurance. Mm. And two years later, you decide that you're going to go ahead and get yourself a license. Well, guess what? You can't go back and collect the fees and fines from when you were driving uh, without a license or a suspended license or driving without insurance. It doesn't work that way. Okay, 
That's probably the best scenario that I can come up with. Uh, <clears throat> continuing. Current awards of 410000 in costs in response to ag- uh, aggressive CRA tactics. Spruce Credit Union received a div- uh, dividend from Stabilization Central Credit Union of British Columbia. A deposit insurance corporation was assessed by the CRA under Section 245.3 and Paragraph 137.1, Brackets 4, Brackets C of the Act. The credit union had spent almost $860,000 in legal fees fighting and eventually winning their appeal. The appeal involved a determination on whether the the dividend was a deductible intercorporate dividend. The appeal also dealt with the issue of whether the Act's general anti-avoidable rule, G-A-A-R, applied to the receipt of the dividend to recharacterize it as other than a deductible dividend received. The issue decided by Justice Boyle in this judgment was on the subject of cost. Justice Boyle ordered the Crown to pay approximately 50% of the credit union's council fees, 410000 Only half. Wow, that's kind of screwed up, isn't it? Um, <laughs> I mean, <clears throat> there's something even wrong with that. And there, this is a huge win. This case is a huge win for any sophisticated party looking at looking to fight the CRA. Yeah, you're out $410,000. Actually, 860 is what they spent. 410, let me see, if my math is correct, 430 would be half. So they even narrowed by, they ripped them off for another. Anyway, it's not half. The CRA took the position that there must be unusual and exceptional circumstances to warrant an award of cost not based upon the, the tariff. The court considered both of the CRA's arguments quite weak to reach his judgment, Justice Boyle relied on the fact that the credit union was successful in both points of appeal. The issues addressed were of broad importance to many interests, and the facts and re- regulatory issues involved were very complex. Justice Boyle also gave weight to the considerable preparation time required by this litigation and that the CRA's case was weak on key points. Justice Boyle held that tariffs amounts were inappropriate, insufficient, and unsatisfactory in this case. This case demonstrates that the PCC won't stand for instances where the CRA is unnecessarily aggressive or takes weak legal positions on complex matters of broad importance. If they continue to do so, it may result in more substantial awards of costs against the CRA. CRA chastised for conduct. In Kingdom, King. Kingdom, Kingan, over $12 million was claimed by Kingan in capital cost allowances, CCA, relating to a license that it purchased to market a heart drug. The CRA denied the entire CCA claim on a number of grounds. One of those grounds was that the minister believed that the license was an unregistered tax shelter. In this judgment, Kingan successfully brought a motion to strike various portions of the reply relating to the issue of whether the license was a tax shelter. So there you go, motion to strike certain sections that they brought. That's a clue, people, that when they write something that is uh, dilatory, excuse me, is improper, uh, vexatious, um, immaterial, irrelevant, uh, and so on, you do a motion to strike those particular sections. Um, so, and that's that's how you could, the reason you do that, again, 
uh, when you read the trial event case, uh, you'll see where they did just that. Uh, the other side tried to gut their case, but in actual fact, what they ended up doing was, was gutting the other side because there had to be a quid pro quo. Well, we want this stricken, we want that stricken, and uh, because you can't you can't prejudice the court with, with nonsense, and that's what they were trying to do, or hijack it. I'll read, hopefully read that case later on. Um, well, in awarding uh, costs, Justice Boyle was mindful that Kinglon was successful on this motion, and more importantly, that the CRA made a conscious choice to draft the reply in a vague manner and refused to commit a particular position on the facts. Well, there you go. As a result, Justice Boyle, so if they're vague, it's vague, for, it's void for vagueness. As a result, Justice Boyd did not think that an award of costs in accordance with the tariff was appropriate. He awarded costs to King Long in the amount of $3,000. Justice Boyle further stated that the CRA is given a power advantage in tax litigation through the ability to plead assumptions of fact. But with great power comes great responsibility. The CRA has the responsibility to ensure, quote, that the facts pleaded as assumptions be complete, precise, accurate, and honestly and truthfully stated so that the taxpayer knows exactly the case and the burden that he or she has to meet. This responsibility was clearly not met. Now, this is also a strategy that my mentor has mentioned many times, that one of the first things you want to do, and you'll hear Russ hopefully he gets on here, um, talk about is the first thing you want is for them to clarify. It's if they're not if it's not clear, it's it, then it's it's a general statement and it can't be relied upon. So you ask for um, a more clear clarified statement, um, or as as Russ says, I can't answer because uh, there's there's nothing here for me to answer. Is basically what he's saying. So again, that goes back to my five R's. Clarify is the very first one. Clarify, clarify. In fact. In Shay's case, in a lot of people's cases, I say clarify, 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 and then verify. So let me go over it again. It's clarify, verify it. Right? So first you clarify what is it that is being said here. What actually is being charged? What is the actual statute? What is the actual case? Who does it apply to? Clarify it. Get them to clarify it. That's a whole part of discovery in and of itself. Verify it. Is it true? What they're, because how many times have we said that they'll throw cases out there that have nothing to do with it, or were, for instance, in the glass in um, <clears throat> in in the several of the cases I've seen on these um, foreclosures, fraud closures, is that the courts are quoting old cases that came out before <clears throat> the Janowski case. Okay, the Supreme Court made it clear they can't continue doing what they were doing once the Supreme Court says you can't do that. All right, um, and then. All too many times, uh, I see where the court has even quoted cases. I've seen the judge quote cases that were lower court cases, and uh, they were just opinions. They weren't based on any law or fact. Um, and I've, I've seen attorneys do that cons- consistently. And as I mentioned before, in my case, they um, I did a uh, motion, an oral motion in court, because I could tell the judge was going to go against me. And I reco- made a request. I knew the court. Uh, to allow further uh, the submission of further authorities, which means cases, laws, and so on. And the, the judge granted it. He gave, I believe it was 30 days. It was 30 or 45 days for me to bring further authorities as well as the other side. Now, what's fascinating about that is the other side and their lameness 
they padded their work. They made it look like they had a whole lot because they put this case in the entire case, which was, uh, believe it or not, had nothing to do with the subject matter. It had to do with an adoption case and a custody case. And there was one tiny little line in there, which what they were quoting, which was, if I remember it, that no court uh, can grant an order that substantially affects the interests of the party. And at first glance, you said to go, oh, oh gosh, oh, man, we can't do anything. But at, once you look at it realistically, you go, oh, wait a minute, that makes perfect sense. And so what I did is I, I had like eight or nine cases in mind. They only had that one. I didn't need to pad mine. They were simply padding theirs because they, that's all they had was that one case and that one tiny little line taken out of context, completely out of context too, by the way. And I sat there and I said, I opened up my, uh, my response with I absolutely agree with them. I completely agree that no court can make an order um, that substantially affects the interests of the parties. And I went through and proceeded to show, as a matter of fact, with, the, <clears throat> with their own record, that I had the greatest interest of all of them, and then proceeded to say that they must do this, uh, what's called status quo. Look into status quo, by the way, that until an issue... If you have, if you're in the house, you have the house that the court's required until the issue is completely resolved properly uh, to remain with status quo as things are. Uh, so uh, that I think helped me um, at least to get to the next. It stopped from that point anyway. So that was, you know, that was helpful. Um, so again, I'm talking strategies here because this is what it's important how we learn and how we can take this out. Here we're seeing the same kind of thing uh, laid out here by Justice Boyle. Uh, let me see. Whatever, blah, 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 blah. The responsibility was clearly not met. Um, so it, let me read it again. Quote, that the facts pleaded as assumptions. Now remember that anytime you're doing a civil case, the courts assume what the plaintiff or the petitioner, or whatever you want to call yourself there, the, the, the moment, is true, okay? And that's even on appeal, unless the other side can tip the scale the other way and show that it's not. So the assumption is always in favor of the petitioner. The only time that's in criminal cases the other way around. They must prove beyond a reasonable doubt. When it comes to civil cases, um, they consider everything that you're saying to be true, and it's the responsibility of the other party um, to prove otherwise and to tip the scale in order to get the presumption on their side. Now, the interesting thing is when you appeal, your, whatever you present is considered or presumed to be true as well. And, the, and now the other side, which was the, the plaintiff, now has to, has to tip the scales the other way. So it's, it's really, it's, when you start to get this, it starts, a lot of this starts to make sense. Now, there is a way to turn the tables on them, and that's to do a counterclaim because... If you do a counterclaim, then the court must address your counterclaim first. Now, that's a good strategy, except for generally speaking in the lower courts, um, they're almost always going to dismiss them just outright. I haven't seen one fly yet. Um, but it doesn't mean that you can't make your record and turn the tables on them, and it requires them to respond to it. And using more strategies, knowing what they're going to do now, I think I could actually make a counter-complaint work. The problem is that most of us are still believing that the courts are looking out for us and, and looking out for the law 
and they're not. So we have to find a way to box the courts themselves in. Remember, your number one, unfortunately, it's sad to say this, but the number one enemy is, in fact, your servant, which is that guy in a robe. Uh, so, you know, you, that's why, I'll give you an example. I helped uh, my friend Tony the other day write a motion um, to dismiss. And as we went through it at the last hour, 4.45 in the morning, um, I went through it and grabbed, and I said, okay, you said here that the statute says this. Well, put the statute in there. So, you know, we're getting really fast now. Go look up the statute, put it in there, and put the quote in there, in pertinent part, and you put the quote in there. Um, and pretty soon, every place which was, was vague and had no, uh, we, I replaced it with actual statute, actual law, um, uh, um, uh, cases, supporting cases, and, and quotes. And now you have something with teeth. Uh, and you're making your record that you can rely on when you come back and don't forget to do your objections. Uh, la, 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 la. Okay. So if it's void... Uh, I mean, if it's vague, it's void. And this is exactly what he's saying, that the first facts pleaded as assumptions be complete, precise, accurate, and honestly and truthfully stated so that the taxpayer knows exactly the case and burden that he or she has to meet. It's a burden upon the defendant or someone defending themselves, whether you want to call yourself a defendant, you're defending yourself. You have a burden to prove otherwise than and therefore you must know what it is that you are uh, uh, required to prove. You wanted to say something? I see South Central Ontario. You want to say something? All right. I'm continuing reading this article here. Stay-at-home mom beats the CRA. That's one we read. I'm going to go ahead and read it again. Ms. Sheila D. Florio successfully appealed a GST assessment in which the CRA alleged that she was a partner with her husband. They have since divorced in the business of selling drugs. <laughs> that sounds funny in and of itself. Mrs. DeFlorio denied any significant involvement in the drug business. She admitted to running errands and visiting stables, but stated that she did not know what her husband was doing. The court agreed and found no evidence to contradict Ms. DeFlorio's assertion that she was, quote, a stay-at-home mom and allowed her appeal with actual costs incurred for counsel. Good. In the previous case of the TCC awarded costs to sophisticated parties disputing complex legal issues, here the TCC awarded costs to individuals with simple matters. Uh, with simple matters. Again, the CRA did not meet their evidentiary responsibility. So that, what does that tell you? Force them to meet their evidentiary responsibilities. That goes straight to standing. The court has demonstrated its displeasure with the CRA, brings weak arguments to court, dances around issues, and fails to meet their evidentiary burden. Um, and, and we see this all the time. So it's good to see this. Uh, cost, uh, court awards costs for travel. Mr. McDavid, a transport truck driver, won his appeal against the CRA regarding input tax credits, ITCs and expenses incurred for business purposes. The case was heard in New Brunswick, where Mr. McDavid lived when, he, when the appeal began. Mr. McDavid later moved to Alberta for his work, along with his spouse, Carolyn Ryan. But the appeal continued to be heard in New Brunswick. 
Ms. Ryan flew to New Brunswick for the trial and successfully testified on the basis that she had prepared all of the claims and was very familiar with her husband's activities. Counsel for the taxpayer argued for solicitor-client costs on the basis of a pretrial settlement offer of 50% of the disputed amount. The court declined to make such an order, but did allow Mrs. Ryan all of her costs for travel from Alberta to New Brunswick for discovery, settlement, conferences, and trial. Conclusion. Although it can be costly and risky in some cases to take a tax matter to trial, the Canadian legal system is not without the means to impose significant costs on the government if the CRA and justice abuse of power, excuse me, abuse of the taxpayers. Of course, the prerequisite to winning costs at the TCC is having a good winnable case. The TCC, in our opinion, should have awarded both Mrs. Martin and Spruce Grove their costs in a full indemnity, quote, client and his or her solicitor basis. We are not quite there yet, but at least the TCC, or at least Justice Boyle, is trying to curb the worst of the taxpayer abuse. That being said, in the vast majority of cases, the TC awards, TCC awards cost in favor of the Crown and taxpayers would be wise to seek counsel before they waste the TCC's time with frivolous or hopeless cases. Knowing the difference between a good winnable case and a hopeless waste of time is tough and requires the assistance of competent legal counsel. Bullshit. Um, unless you're completely ignorant, and okay, then I guess you need it. And unfortunately, most of them have been brainwashed as well, so I don't agree. Now, the interesting one here was a stay-at-home mom. Because in my mind, she clearly, it was determined, what was it here? The court agreed and found no evidence to contradict Ms. DeFloro's assertion that she was a stay-at-home mom, end quote, and allowed her appeal with actual costs incurred for counsel. So she was granted the cost of counsel. Um, there, I would say, is the, is the argument of the non-taxpayer, because as the court found that she was a stay-at-home mom, which meant she could not have been a taxpayer. Uh, so that's that good article. Let's see if I can go back here. All right. Um, let me pull up those cases to to punch this home a little bit more. Northern Virginia, East Tennessee. Okay. <clears throat> let me pull up those cases if I can find them again on the computer here. Uh, because the wording of the court is so much far better than mine. That's why I'm reading. Let's see if I can get it here. Let's see. I think I can do it this way. Oh, yeah, it was a motion to strike is what we what we put in. Let me pull up. That one, which I haven't read yet. Uh, let me see. Miller versus Homecoming. I mean, uh, Home something. Miller versus Homecoming's financial. And then there's Venova. And what was the other one I was looking at? United States of America versus Durrell. 
That one I already had up. Okay, hold on. I'm looking for this case here. I read so many cases. I'm just like, sometimes I get lost. But I'm going to go and I think I put in, I made a thing in today's file. Let me start off with reading. All right, this this particular, I don't know if this is pertinent or not. This is United States of America versus Darrell Lee Price, Jr., West Virginia, 2015, man charged with operating a vehicle under the influence of alcohol, which rendered him incapable of the safe operation of the motor vehicle in violation of 36 CFR. Driving under the influence of alcohol in violation of 36 CFR. Have an open container, an alcohol beverage. Uh, what was fascinating about this case, I don't think there's anything pertinent here, but because he fought it, he was able to show the one of the officers said that he did not notice any impairment that he was able to operate. So the court basically found that he was... It uh, uh, shows different arguments that didn't fly. Uh, I had this purple for proof of the charge that the defendant was operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of alcohol to a degree. Here's the key part. To a degree which rendered him incapable of safe operation of the motor vehicle. Uh, defendant's counsel argued that the evidence did not support the United States claim that the defendant was operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of alcohol to the degree which rendered him incapable of the safe operation of the motor vehicle. Uh, referring to Ranger Keot's testimony that in watching defendant drive along, he did not see any indication that defendant was impaired. Uh, so the key word, uh, let me see, did, did he argue jurisdiction that it was not the part, but they he, he lost that part. Let me see, let me see, let me see. That's, this is... Uh, okay, let me share this with you. This is a good quote here. To prove the elements under 36 CFR 4.23A1, the government must show that the defendant, and that's in brackets, by the way, it's kind of interesting, one, was operating or was in actual physical control of a vehicle, number two, under the influence of alcohol, number three, to a degree of intoxication that rendered him incapable of safe operation, end quote, United States versus King. Evidence of blood alcohol con- concentration has probative value for a charge under 44.23A1, but the BAC results are only one piece of evidence that must be considered in a 40, uh, 4.23A1 analysis and that's United States versus Foster. Field evidence is also relevant, including evidence respecting a defendant's driving, in parentheses, observed weaving, driving erratically, or difficulty stopping, in end bracket, or in parentheses, condition and appearance, uh, parentheses, observed odor of alcohol, red and watery eyes, slurred speech, or confused or nervous, and dexterity and coordination, 
parentheses observed in administrating the FFSPS, which is the, you know, the, the whole thing. United States versus Foster, proof of a violation of 36 CFR 4.23A2 is accomplished by means of evidence obtained through an acceptable test and procedure that the alcohol concentration in the breath of the person charged was 0.08 grams or more of alcohol per 210 liters of breath when he was operating or in actual physical control of the motor vehicle. Um, so of course, I would have attacked. Um, I would have attacked if he was in in control of a motor vehicle or merely of vehicle. But uh, that generally doesn't win because most people don't know how to argue. It's not argued properly, and they usually sidestep the issue and vague it out. But that's what they had to prove. Um, and here it says uh, it is not evident beyond a reasonable doubt, however, that the defendant was so intoxicated, even though the breathalyzer showed that it was. Um, the, what, what was stated here is it's not evident beyond a reasonable doubt, however, that the defendant was so intoxicated that he was incapable of operating the vehicle safely. And I find that fascinating. Um, the undersigned, and I'm skipping only to what I have highlighted in purple, that's why I like highlighting. The undersigned, therefore, concludes that the evidence does not support a finding of guilt respecting the charge that he was operating a motor vehicle while under the influence of alcohol to a degree which rendered him incapable of safe operation of the motor vehicle in violation of 36 CFR 4.23A1 and concludes that the evidence supports a finding of guilt respecting the charge that the defendant was driving under the influence of alcohol in violation of 36 CFR 4 0.23 a 2 so he was um, uh, so he's found guilty of having an open container and and driving uh, uh, driving under the influence but uh, the other section um, uh, he could not be uh, charged with because it did not impair his ability apparently to be able to um, operate the motor vehicle safely. So that I'm going to put that case away. That was almost a sidetrack. I'm trying to find this. Uh, la 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 la. This is the trust of the Venova. Excuse me. Yeah, Y V A N O V A case. And let me scroll down and find the parts that I think are important that I've been mentioning all this time. If I can find them quickly, this is a fairly long. This is 18 pages. This is why I like highlighting. Uh, hopefully, I highlighted it. I lost. Um, oh crap! I lost uh, at one time. No, I do have the highlighted good. Okay, see, it's like halfway down. Let me start reading from here. All right, there's a whole section here where the defendant, which is the bank in this case, this is a, this is a non, uh, non-judicial foreclosure um, state, so they had to bring the action to, to prevent it. Uh, what is this? I haven't found. Please give me clues. Somebody want to type that in? 
Try calling. Uh, I can't hear me anyway. Um, all right. And so anyway, they relied on the Jenkins case because the Jenkins, J-E-N-K-I-N-S, the Jenkins case um, raised a number of, uh, or raised one particular issue, and that's why uh, the foreclosure went forward. But that was clearly different. Again, this is where they're misrepresenting. The defendants are misrepresenting the cases. Uh, uh, for, I'm going to read a little bit of that so you get an idea of what the court is looking at, why, why, how they're trying to present it, and then what the court says. And th- that's why you want to read from the bottom, because otherwise you'll get confused uh, as to what's actually being said. Here, the court is presenting the argument um, of the defendants, which is the banksters, uh, or the attorneys allegedly representing banksters, um, which the court later will say, we don't find any merit in it. Okay, so what I'm reading to you is 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 their presentation of basic uh, for a misrepresentation. Okay, so let's be clear on that before I read. For its conclusion on standing, uh, they're addressing standing. There's other ones too. I'm sort of jumping here. Uh, Judkins cites Corrier versus Deutsche Bank National Trust, 2011. The borrowers in that case challenged the foreclosure on the grounds that the assignment of their mortgage into a securitized trust had not been made in accordance with the trust pooling and servicing agreement. Um, the appellate court held the borrowers, quote, lack of standing to challenge the mortgage's chain of title under the PSA, end quote, being neither parties nor third-party beneficiaries of the pooling agreement, they could not complain of a failure to abide by the terms. Now, that has actually basically been overturned by the, um, uh, come on, Colin, what is the name of that case? The, uh, uh, I need that case. Um, I'll think of it in a minute. What year was that case, anyway? 2011. I think that was overturned with the Gladsky, 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 Gladsky case. Because the Gladsky case um, basically stated otherwise. And what the Gladsky case uh, did, which I've mentioned before, is they said that the servicing and pooling agreement was under New York law, even though they're in California. And therefore, they were going to abide by New York law where the uh, trust was created. And New York law says anything that a trustee of a REMIC does that is outside their capacity is void. So if it is void, then the assignment is void. And therefore, anyone coming after that has nothing. So it is not a matter of voidable which has been the, the, the rally cry for all of these courts um, and these, these judges and these uh, attorneys and these banksters, that's been the rally cry. You're a third party. Now, uh, part of a case I'm putting together on, 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 as a side note is I'm arguing otherwise, that naturally because you have an obligation to make payment to the alleged lender, and for these purposes, we're going to go ahead and, and, and uh, allow the term lender to be used loosely, even though it's not used loosely in the actual documents themselves. 
But for now, I would say that a lender and or assigns, which is not in the document, but we'll just say that the lender is the party that's entitled to payment. Okay? So you have an obligation, even if misuse of UCC, again, if you're not a commercial lender, there's no reason, but we'll go ahead and play their game. Under the UCC 3, it clearly states that if you make payments to the wrong party, you don't get credit for it. So you are never going to be a... Um, uh, a third-party, disinterested party in any transfer uh, of the note deed of trust or that obligation uh, to another party because when they take on those rights, that means now you're obligated to someone new and you have every right to ensure that you're paying the proper party, okay? Now, that's an argument no one's raised yet, um, and I believe that that will carry, carry the day, uh, particularly on the back of it with a bunch of case law and so on. But for, these, for this particular, uh, this is what they're stating. This is their mantra has been that you're a third party to that transaction, that the, the instrument is an instrument that has its own life, that has its own. Because what they're doing, again, the whole foundation of that argument, which is one I've been arguing for a long time, is that it is not a negotiable instrument as defined under UCC3, which is an instrument that... Um, that um, it, the general definition of it is one that is an unconditional promise to pay. So it doesn't fit that. And then in the actual definition, it says is, is um, what is it, is, um, is uh, uh, what is the word I'm trying to use here, is due, is, uh, what is the word? Ah, basically, uh, I forget the term. Terms are important. What under UCC three that it is uh, negotiable or collectible. In other words, they can collect payable. There we go, payable. That it is payable upon demand. So not only does it not fit the general description, which is an unconditional promise to make, because clearly if you look at the instrument, it's conditional. Uh, it's conditional. It says it right in there that any the lender or anyone who takes this note by transfer and is entitled to payments on the note shall be called the note holder. So those are conditioned as well as the note itself, the very first words say, in return for, there is a condition, okay? When you create a check, there's no in return for, okay? A money order is not in return for. There's no conditions in there whatsoever, okay? Uh, that's why if you pick up a $50 bill off the, off the ground, it is, you can negotiate it. You can, you, can, uh, you can absolutely make use of it because you have possession of it. There's nothing else that's needed with a negotiable instrument other than possession and entitlement to payment under if it's a particular type of note. But here, they must be entitled to payment. You see, it's very, very important. If you pick it up off a $50 bill and it's not yours, you still get to spend it. So that, that difference is very, very important. And yes, a $50 bill, once it's issued, it is payable on demand. Um, your note is not payable under demand. It's it's payable in payments and so on and so forth, and there's interest assigned to it. There's early payments and there's conditions as to what payments go where, all sorts of conditions all over it. So it's not an unconditional instrument, and it is not payable upon demand, which means what? It's not, quote, a negotiable instrument, just like we discussed a term jackass uh, is, is not, you know, is a donkey with big ears kind of thing. Here we have the same thing. They're calling it a negotiable instrument when it's not, which does not mean it's not negotiable. You see, there's two different things. You've got to be very clear on this stuff. 
negotiable instrument is defining something, just like person or jackass or any of these other terms that are defined specifically, does not mean that it is not negotiable, okay? It can be an instrument that is negotiable and not be a negotiable instrument as defined. Sounds confusing once you get the idea of what a term is if you put negotiable instrument in quotations, the same as you put taxpayer in quotations, when you put person in quotations, you understand that it is no longer a word but a term. Okay? Just like if I ask people on the street, which I do all the time, are you a taxpayer? They go, oh, yes. No, I didn't ask you if you pay taxes. I asked you, are you, quote, a taxpayer? Okay? So, continuing here, this is this is a, a really, really good example of what uh, to confirm everything I've been sharing with you so that you can get it through your head exactly what we're talking about here. Jenkins also cites Her- Herrera versus Federal National Mortgage Association, which primarily addresses the uh, 935 merit of a foreclosure challenge, concluding the borrowers had uh, adduced no facts on which they could allege an assignment from Mears to another beneficiary was invalid. In reaching the merits, the court did not explicitly discuss the plaintiff's standing to challenge the assignment. In a passage cited in Jenkins, however, the court observed that the plaintiffs, in order to state a wrong foreclosure claim, needed to show prejudice, and they could not do so because the challenged assignment did not change their obligation under the note. Even if Mears lacked the authority to assign the deed of trust, quote, the true victims were not plaintiffs but the lender. Now, this is all highlighted in red, and you'll see that the court did not agree with that, and you can't agree with that. Uh, It's absolutely ridiculous. Uh, If somebody doesn't have uh, the power to assign something or transfer it, then they don't, what did they assign? And this is so important because this goes to all of your tax sales, okay? Uh, And it goes to almost every mortgage because the um, title, she's not on here anymore, shoot. Uh, but um, uh, Cheyenne, this is for you, um, that it is a trustee's deed. And then you have also a tax deed. These are new deeds. Right? This is not where the original warranty deed is transferred to another party. All rights, title, and interest and the protections thereof are transferred to another party, which is the way it should be. They literally create a new, a new deed. Okay, which is absolute bullshit when you get to it because they don't have any authority. Why are they not transferring the original one? Because they're creating a new one. But guess what? It says in the deed of trust very clearly, no warranty expressed or implied. Well, there's a reason there. That is notice. Okay, that constitutes notice under UCC3. It's notice of claims or defenses against any claim that they may have. Okay, so that's very clear notice to them. Now, the way that the attorneys disguise it and fulfill the requirement at the same time is they call it a special warranty deed. Oh, how special. Well, unfortunately, when you look up special warranty, instead of assuming that, oh, we got a special, this is really good, again, go looking up the term special warranty deed, you will find that special warranty deed means no warranty expressed or implied. You see how tricky they are. And, and the, here's my point of view. If they're being tricky in and of itself, isn't that an indication that they're doing something uh, unconscionable or they're trying to disguise something, they're trying to hide something? Isn't that 
the foundation of deceit. And in law, deceit is unlawful. A contract that is done in deceit or anything done in deceit, the court cannot uphold deceit. Because isn't deceit fraud? The essence of fraud, to deceive. And that's why there's no statute of limitation on these except after you discover the de- whatever the deceit is. Okay, continuing. On the narrow question before us, the court's trying to narrow it. They always like to do this. They always like to, oh, I don't want to answer that question. That's a little bit too uncomfortable. So we're just going to narrow it down to what we are willing to do. Whether a wrongful foreclosure plaintiff may challenge an assignment, the foreclosing entity is as void. We conclude Glasky provides a more logical answer than Jenkins. As explained in Part 1 and T, only the entity holding the beneficial interest under the deed of trust, dash, the original lender, its assignees, or an agent of one of these, dash, may instruct the trustee to commence and complete a non-judicial foreclosure. Well, unfortunately, they're correct about instructing the trustee to sell the property, but there is absolutely no provision for a trustee to commence a foreclosure. So that's another major problem, even though they're actually doing a good thing here. If a purported assignment necessary to the chain by which the foreclosing entity claims to pro power to absolutely void it, oh, let me read, God butchered that. Sorry, let me try it again. If a purported assignment necessary to the chain, chain of title, by which the foreclosing entity claims the power is absolutely void, meaning of no legal force or effect whatsoever, and they quote the case Colby versus Title Insurance and Trust Company, the foreclosing entity has acted without legal authority by pursuing a trustee sale and such an unauthorized sale constitutes a wrongful foreclosure. Wow. Let me repeat that because it's worth repeating. If a purported assignment necessary to the chain by which the foreclosing entity claims that power is absolutely void, meaning of no legal force or effect whatsoever, the foreclosing entity has acted without legal authority by pursuing a trustee sale, and such an unauthorized sale constitutes a wrongful foreclosure. Now take that one sentence and apply it to almost any case out there. If the party who is in doing something, whatever it is that they're doing, bringing in an action of some sort, is without legal authority to do so, then it is utterly void, and in, in this case, it's a wrongful foreclosure. It's a wrongful act, isn't it? You see? this is all, Again, it goes across the board. Let me continue. This is the court speaking now. So anyone who wants to disagree is not disagreeing with me. This is the beauty. I'm taking me out of it. Just my, I'm just sharing what I'm reading here, and they are laying it out so beautifully, what I've tried to express for so long here. Number four, like the Massachusetts bar uh, considered in Culhane, whose mortgages contain the power of sale allowing for non-judicial foreclosure, California bars whose loans are secured by a deed of trust with power of sale may suffer foreclosure without judicial process and thus, quote, would be deprived of a means to assert their legal protections if not permitted to challenge the foreclosing entity's authority through an action for wrongful foreclosure. 
In other words, uh, if you read up above the last, you know, eight, uh, five pages or whatever it is, eight pages, one of the claims of the defendants, which is the bank in this case, was that they didn't have any standing at all to even make a claim of wrongful foreclosure. So they're addressing this issue here, okay, that they would be prejudiced, they would be defined. So continuing, a borrower, therefore, quote, has standing to challenge the assignment of a mortgage on her home to the extent that such a challenge is necessary to contest a foreclosing entity's status quo mortgagee. In other words, they have to be a mortgagee in order to do the foreclosure, which means they have to be entitled to payments. They must have taken it through a proper chain of title, which is the proper transfers. So that gives them the right because it would be an unauthorized party acting because they're required to have a proper chain of title. Uh, quote, a homeowner in Massachusetts, even when not a party to or a third-party beneficiary of a mortgage assignment, has standing to challenge that assignment as void because success on the merits would prove the purported assignee is not, in fact, the mortgagee and therefore lacks any right to foreclose on the mortgage. End quote. The difference between the other case and the Jenkin case um, and this one is that they were arguing the, um, the assignment to the Remick in its proper procedures. And they, not being a party to the transaction itself, they, are, they have an interest in the transaction, but it is merely what they were arguing was it was a possible voidable transaction, a voidable assignment, not void. Here, they're arguing void. If they don't have the chain of title because of necessary requirements, then it would be void. If they, if they in their process of assigning it, fail to do some procedural act, then it might be voidable, and it would have to be one of those two parties in the transaction that would make an action to void it. Which brings up another issue for those people who are listening either now or to the recording. Um, this is something that came to me after much study on this here, uh, and, it's, and to me it was confirmed, and, and later on, I don't know if it's in this case or another case where I got, actually got it confirmed, that unless one of the parties of the transaction, listen to this carefully, unless one of the parties to the transaction takes an action to void it, that which is voidable, something may be voidable, but until one of the parties takes an action to void it, it is considered to still be valid. Now, why is that important? Uh, I, I don't know if it's in this case or not. I might be preempting here, but I read stuff. I read it in. I don't know if it's this case or another case. Ironically enough, I did not know this, that um, uh, a um, fraud, uh, there's, some, there's three examples which are considered to be voidable. And believe it or not, fraud was one of them. I couldn't believe it. Now, what's interesting is they did have fraud in the inducement was considered to be voidable and not void. And that just threw out probably a couple hundred pages of stuff that I had done years ago. I've since kind of thrown or let them, you know, get a bunch of mold on it because now I understand the difference. But it really just completely slammed me because I I believed and still do that fraud viscerates everything, including contracts. 
But let me share how I was wrong and yet kind of right at the same time. I'm not completely wrong. What's, what I was wrong about is, yes, it does viscerate if someone takes an action to void that which is voidable. Now, listen up. Here's a wonderful strategy in my mind. If void in the inception of voice, void, uh, excuse me, fraud in the inducement, fraud in, 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 the, um, in the origination of it is, makes it voidable, it is still considered to be valid until someone, some party to that transaction makes it void. So what does that tell you? Well, who was induced? You were. Who was the party to the transaction at the very beginning? You were. So what does that tell you? You need to take an action, which is pretty much what rescission is doing, if you think about it. Well, here's an opening in my mind that you don't need TILA to rescind, which is, again, why Spirit led me to rescind not only the, the, the transaction, but rescind my signature, which is what I did. And I didn't just do it under TILA. I did it under what I consider to be common law then. I just did it as a man who has a, who has a right to, vo- to, uh, uh, to uh, rescind his signature when I believe, for whatever reason I choose, quite frankly. Okay, it's mine and I can do it as I please. Now, it doesn't mean that if I cause injury for doing that, that I can be sued for damages and everything else, compensatory damages, subsidiary damages, reliance damages, and so on, particularly reliance damages in that case. All right, I would be liable for it, but it doesn't mean that my rescission would be invalid. Okay? So I hope I'm not getting too complicated here because it's really simple. That if you there was void in the uh, inducement, which is the induced you to sign the documents under false pretenses, is voidable, and you fail, or whoever is party to that transaction fails to void it or make it void, then it's considered to be valid and enforceable. So once again, here we go with procedure, procedure, procedure. You, if you're the party to the transaction, um, or somebody else would be party to any of these transactions that were voidable, they need to take an action to make it void. Otherwise, it's valid. So do you see my strategy there? Simply void the original transaction for fraud in the inducement. And now they don't have a valid instrument anymore, do they? Anyway, that was a slight side note that came to me, and I think that's really, really powerful for people who... Uh, are, are facing foreclosures and that they can show um, uh, fairly reasonably, and, and, and we can do that all day long, uh, uh, that, 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 they, that, they, that they was fraud in the inducement, okay? Um, which is that, they, that uh, there was never a loan. They received your note, they deposited your note, and they used it as a credit instrument, and they had every intention of using it as a credit instrument and not as a debt instrument. Moving on. Number five, Jenkins and other courts denying standing have done so partially out of concern with allowing a, quote, borrower to enforce terms of a transfer agreement to which the borrower was not party. In general, California law does not give a party personal standing to assert rights or interests belonging solely to others. Actions must be brought by or on behalf of the party in interest. When an assignment is merely voidable, the power to ratify or avoid the transaction lies solely with the parties to the assignment. The transaction is not void unless and until one of the parties takes steps to make it so. Wow, I did did the spoilers. Forgive me. There it is in writing. 
Let me repeat that. When an assignment is merely voidable, the power to ratify or avoid the transaction lies solely with the parties to the assignment. The transaction is not void unless and until one of the parties takes steps to make it so. A borrower who challenges foreclosure on grounds with the assignment to the foreclosing party board defects, rendering it voidable, could thus be said to assert an interest belonging solely to the parties to the assignment rather than to himself. And that's why when you argue uh, that particular, uh, it's not, it's not going to work because you weren't party to the transaction because you're arguing something that is voidable and not void. And I believe it was now almost two years ago that I uh, woke up and realized that that's exactly where we're at. You have to show that it is void, not voidable. Wow, we're losing people here. Okay. It's still a recording, and I know this is going to be useful for other people because this is the meat, baby. So that just tells me that the other people called in were not looking for meat. So you people who are hanging in here, congratulations. When the plaintiff alleges a void assignment, however, the Jenkins Court's concern with enforcement of third-party interest is misplaced. Borrowers who challenge the foreclosing party's authority on the grounds of a void assignment, quote, are not attempting to enforce the terms of the instrument of the assignment. To the contrary, they urge that the assignments are void ab initio. And it's Renegal Supra 735F3D at page 225. Accord, Merck versus MRUK versus Mortgage Electronic Registry System, Inc. I need to look that one up. Uh, RI 2013, 82A3D 527-536, in brackets. Borrowers challenging an assignment as void are not attempting to assert the rights of one of the contracting parties. Instead, the homeowners are asserting their own rights not to have their homes unlawfully foreclosed upon, end quotes. And that's interesting because that's in brackets and in, um, in um, what do you call it, um, the, round, the round brackets. Like the square brackets and then you've got the parentheses. Not for, yeah, parentheses. Why that word's been leaving my mind lately. Unlike, unlike a voidable transaction, a void one cannot be ratified or validated by the parties to it even if they so desired, kaboom. I mean, that's it. I mean, that's just unlike a voidable transaction, a void one cannot be ratified or validated by the parties to it, even if they so desire. Colby versus Title Insurance and Trust Company, Super 160 Cal, at page 644. Also, Aaron, A-R-O-N-O-F-F, Verfus, Albanese, A-L-B-A-N-E-S-E, Super 446, uh, New York S, N-Y-S, 2D, at page 370. And by the way, uh, I think I mentioned this before, when you are going to quote cases, you need to quote them properly, else the court has the discretion to not accept them. Um, Continuing, parties to a securitization or other transfer agreement may well wish to ratify the transfer agreement despite any defects. 
but no ratification is possible if the assignment is void ab initio. In seeking a finding that an assignment agreement was void, therefore, a plaintiff in Vanova position is not asserting the interest of party to the assignment. She is asserting her own interest in limiting foreclosure on her property to those with legal authority to order a foreclosure sale. So she's limiting to it. Um, I got a bunch of red here. I'm not going to read the red. I think that pretty much nailed it right there. There's the section I'm looking for here. Ah, here it is. This is a beautiful statement. All right. Now they're going back and, and re-arguing a little bit on the other side. This is how they did. They could play ping pong with it with the issue. The logic of defendants, in this case the banks, no prejudice argument implies that anyone, even a stranger to the debt, could declare default and under a trustee sale and order a trustee sale, and the borrower would be left with no recourse because, after all, he or she owed the debt to someone, though not to the foreclosing entity. This would be an odd result indeed, and uh, Rengel Supra. As, uh, as a district court observed in rejecting the no prejudice argument, quote, banks are neither private attorney general nor bounty hunters armed with a roving commission to seek out defaulting homeowners and take away their homes in satisfaction of some other bank's deed of trust. And that was Miller versus Homecomings Financial. And that's, I'm going to read out of that in a second here. And I actually put the link in here. I added the link in here. And I think that that was it. I'm looking for any more highlights here. And it refers to Glaske an awful lot in this case. So if it's good enough for them to refer to it, IR is going to refer to it too. But you see how this is proceeding. As you can see here, the fraud that that these attorneys put on, and the courts just completely suck it up because people don't know how to combat it properly. And here, the, uh, they clearly define the difference between voidable and void. Uh, let me see, where was I? Oh, I want to go over here. I'm going to go to Miller. Now, Miller is the, uh, the case that this court... Um, Quoted. So let me go down and find that quote. Uh, the Miller case is actually quite short. Uh, let me see if I can get this to work here. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the beginning here. They were trying to do a 12b6 on it. Rule 12b6 allows a court to dismiss a plaintiff's complaint if it quote fails to state a claim upon which relief can be granted. Federal Rule Civil Procedure 12b6, Rule 12b6, dismisses, dismissals are proper only if the plaintiff fails to plead enough facts, 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 not conclusion. Remember, oh gosh, when was it? Months ago, when I read that case, it was thrown out because the court said you have to plead some facts. You can't just string a whole bunch of conclusions of law together uh, and say that that's your case. Just because it says that you can't do this, you can't do that, you can't do counterfeit, and they were quoting all these laws, which is great. At least finally they were quoting some. The fact is that they never put any facts in there and showed any evidence that they actually had engaged in counterfeiting. 
there's one thing to, to quote the law of counterfeiting, uh, 18 U.S.C., uh, subsection 471 through 474, it, uh, uttering and passing is, is there as well. You have to show some kind of evidence that they did utter and pass a counterfeit instrument, that there was something that went on. You see what I'm getting at? And it's a big mistake that a lot of people I see make in their cases, uh, which doesn't mean that you can't amend them and learn how to do it better. Uh, continuing here. Dismiss our property only if the plaintiff fails to state enough facts to state a claim to relief that is plausible on its face. That's Ashcroft versus Iqbal. And that's a, a lot of people use Ashcroft uh, v. Iqbal. So it's worthwhile reading that one. Bell, also quoting Bell Atlantic Corporation versus Twombly. And Twombly is another great case. If you haven't read it, read it. Um, a claim has factual plausibility when the plaintiff pleads factual content that allows the court to draw the reasonable inference that the defendant is liable for the misconduct alleged. So just saying that something's unlawful doesn't mean that they did it. You have to show that they did the thing. It is the plaintiff's responsibility to actually, quote, plead specific facts, not mere conclusional allegations to avoid dismissal. When the plaintiff does plead such specific facts, the court must, must assume that they are true and draw all reasonable inferences from them in the plaintiff's favor. So if you're a defendant, now you know why the court's always acting as if everything is true and correct, because you have the burden. Yes, you do. In a civil case, you do have the burden to prove what the other party is saying is untrue or proving facts uh, that show that it's untrue or mitigating facts or something to that effect. There it is. When the plaintiff does plead such specific facts, the court must assume that they are true, which is go back to what I did uh, last week when we read uh, Shay's case. Because she made that statement, which was, to me, it was, it was irrelevant, really, and she had the opportunity to cross-examine or make any other statements. Um, uh, either way, it could have uh, uh, gone against it. She could have tipped the scales um, against them. Because she failed to do that, they weren't challenged. The facts were considered to be true. Okay, so any time that you have the opportunity, you must take it. Okay, you must take it. And that's why we mentioned uh, several months ago that the, the power of a general, I read a case law, uh, excuse me, a, case, a supporting case, which in that court they did find that the general denial um, was sufficient to cause the other party to prove their case which I found fascinating. I thought it was a real nice tool there. So always do a general denial of the facts, except for you might admit to one or two of them. In other words, if they're stating, uh, you know, that, that you, you did this and this and that and the other thing, and in the midst of it they say that it was, it was a, a rainy day. Well, you might do a general denial and then admit that it was a rainy day. That's how I would do it. That's just my, my opinion. Do a general denial because... When you do a general denying, you're de denying all the facts or the alleged facts. Now they must bring forth some evidence and prove all of those facts. You see what I'm getting at? And that's what the, the court went after it. It was really interesting what that court did. Um, 
continuing, as a general rule, courts must, quote, afford plaintiffs at least one opportunity to cure pleading deficiencies before dismissing a case. Unless it is clear that the defects are incurable or the plaintiffs advise the court that they are unwilling or unable to amend in a manner that will avoid dismissal. Now, I've read a couple cases about that, that one where the guy refused uh, to the court. He came in as a um, sovereign citizen, and the court went to great lengths to explain why that was basically an oxymoron, and that he could neither be a sovereign, because if he was a sovereign, he wouldn't need to be in the court, and then if he was a citizen, then he was subject, so he couldn't claim that he was a sovereign, not subject. So they uh, asked, basically they said uh, that he clearly had standing, but he did not have capacity, and they requested him to come in under a different capacity. So capacity does, in fact, mean an awful lot, at least in this case, or in that case. He refused. He refused to call himself a sovereign, which meant that the case would have been thrown out, or call himself a citizen, therefore he was subject to the court. He was willing to continue along those lines and grant grant the court the power to make a decision and then give the facts and evidence so that they would make a decision that was in his favor. So they dismissed the case. Um, uh, la, 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 la. In the alternative, um, uh, we've, I've seen many times where we take the, the uh, rebuttal by the court um, and you amend the case. In fact, you'll see this several times. At least once, it says a four plane is at least one opportunity to cure. So that's the reason you want to go, again, more, more helpful instructions here. That's one of the reasons why you want to um, 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 uh, go ahead and amend, amend it and maybe get leave of the court to do it, to amend it again. And you want to file, I know what I was going to say. You want to file um, under informal papyrus because. When you do inform a papyrus, the courts will reject it if it's not good enough to go to the court. And I believe I read a case to you once before where the court said that because they had paid the fee uh, and they had an attorney, it was assumed that the attorney had enough knowledge to know how to present the facts properly, and therefore it could be thrown out without opportunity uh, uh, to correct these huge errors which were uh, on its face um, uh, uncorrectable. And that's why, and that's, so they had to basically uh, refile if they wanted to do it. Foreclosure from the door of the super injunctive. Here's this part here. Congressional legal claim. Texas recognizes a claim for wrongful foreclosure. League City State Bank versus Mars. Affirming judgment holding bank liable for wrongful foreclosure. Texas courts also permit debtors to sue for injunctive and declaratory relief to prevent wrongful foreclosure. Listen to that. That was powerful. I was like, wow. Um, Texas courts, now this has to do with Texas, so you have to look in your state also permit debtors to sue for injunctive and declaratory relief to prevent wrongful foreclosures. So you get injunctive and declaratory relief. 
Uh, let me see. Providing uh, for and this I didn't quite understand this. This is uh, something else in Livings versus Mills C T R C P. Uh, providing for automatic stay of foreclosure proceedings upon filing of an original proceeding in a court of competent jurisdiction contesting the right to foreclose. And I keep seeing this more and more later as this competent jurisdiction. Um, there's also a part in here which says that a wrongful foreclosure action is, guess what, a common law action. Uh-huh. That interesting. Which, again, when you look at it, in most courts today, they consider that which is equity in nature is the same thing as common law, or very similar to the same thing as common law. Debtors may challenge a foreclosure sale on various grounds. No uh, no default in payment by the debtor, slaughter, slater versus quails, violations of the conditions and limitations of the trustee's power of sale under the deed of trust, Non-compliance. Oh, what are we doing? Reading? Oh, okay, okay. Let me get the subject here. Sorry about that. Do, 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 do. No, that was it. Okay. Debtors may challenge a foreclosure sale on various grounds, such as no default in the payment by the debtor. Okay? Uh, I've seen cases where that happened in New York, uh, where the people were could show that they had made their payments, and they kept asking, the records showed that they had made their payments. They continued to make their payments while they were in litigation. And the judge ended up giving them the house and, and uh, vacated the, um, the instruments themselves, the, the alleged debt. Violate, okay, the second one is violation of conditions and limitations of the trustee's power of sale under the deed of trust. Now, I have that particular section highlighted in purple because they never do it under the deed of trust. They always do it in some willy-nilly stuff. They do it under what they believe or what they think. And a lot of times they do it under state laws, not under the deed of trust. The deed of trust is the law. Okay? The contract is the law. Um, another reason that you can do it, non-compliance with the statutory notice and other requirements for a non-judicial sale. So in every state they have, um, and, and actually it's in the deed of trust, what the notice must be, the default notice, and so on and so forth which they're required to do. So if there's some something that they didn't do precisely right, I've seen foreclosures stopped because of that. And most significantly, for the present case, no, quote, contractual standing by the party to foreclose. So there you have a contractual standing. So they didn't have any standing to bring the action because the assignment was void, not voidable. Let me see what else is there. Determining mortgagee status is easy when the party is named as grantee or beneficiary in the original deed of trust, mortgage, or contract lien. But factual disputes may arise when the party seeking to foreclose is not the original mortgagee, as it most often in the case these days. In such cases, the foreclosing party must be able to trace its rights under the security instrument back to the mortgagee, and that's Livings v. Mills. That's a really good one. Uh, do, 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 do. If the instrument payable to an identified person, negotiation requires both transfer of possession 
and written endorsement by the holder. In order to enforce the note as holder, a party who is not the original lender must prove, quote, successive transfers of possession and endorsement, end quote, establishing an, quote, unbroken chain of title. That's Levings again. Uh, Thus, with certain exceptions, possession of the note is typically required in order for a holder to enforce it. Now, here they go into a discussion, uh, which if you don't know what they're talking about, could get you a little confused, um, that there are arguments that have been made and failed because they relied exclusively on possession, saying it's called the note uh, holder. Where is it? the one who is in possession of the, what is it, where's the note theory? And why that doesn't go is because they have to do more than just prove they don't have a possession because, unfortunately, UCC3 allows a party who is entitled to payments uh, under the note, they don't necessarily have to have the actual note itself. So that's why some people failed at that. Now we've got the solution to that problem. See, all the problems you've had over the last six years, this case basically touches on every one of the problems with them and how then to create the solution. So you want to say, not only do they not have the original note, they can't produce the original note, and again, going along with Colin's new uh, secondary evidence um, uh, strategy, they're required to come into court and prove that they indeed had it at the time before it was lost, stolen, or otherwise... um, um, uh, um, was it destroyed due to no fault of their own. See, that's another part of it right there. And they must testify that they did have it in their possession and were entitled to payments at the time that it was lost or stolen. And they have to have that same person or some person come in and testify as to the contents of it. None of them have read it. None of them know it. None of them are party to it. And guess what? They can't fulfill those requirements. End of story. That's why I believe that strategy is going to be very powerful for somebody who's been listening and to use it. Um, I may use it myself one day. Um, In fact, I'm actually leaning in that direction right now. Um, Move to strike, move to strike, unless they want to come and testify to it. This has to do with, again, with the accounting. They bring an accountant in. The accountant cannot testify as to the stuff that's on their screen. They can only testify that they saw the stuff on the screen. They cannot testify as to the, the, the as to receiving the actual payments or otherwise. And that's why you can stop them dead on that as well. I've seen that happen in the foreclosure case where um, they put the person on the stand and the attorney was aware of the other attorney's uh, leading questions to lead them down that pathway, and he completely knocked them out and said, oh, so you can actually only testify to that which you saw on the screen, not as to how it got entered, where it came from, and the actual possession of it. They're like, no. So that was the end of that. Uh, The owner of the note uh, here, this is used to see three stuff again, and I'm quoting them. The owner of the note need not be a holder because the two issues are separate and distinct. Um, Again, go read the note, guys. Um, Anyone who takes this note by transfer and is entitled to payment shall be called the note holder not the owner of the note. And I keep going back to that, and it's, to me it's very per- it's powerful. Uh, a person not identified in a note who is seeking to enforce it as the owner must prove the transfer 
by which he acquired the note. Such a transfer may be proved by testimony as well as by documentation. So you can testify, but you also need to have documentation. And that's Premier versus Pacific South Bank. In such cases, a party is, quote, required to prove the note and an unbroken chain of assignments transferring to him the right to enforce the note according to its terms. And that's something they never do. So now I finally have a case where I can where I can actually pull this out and say, wait a minute, right here in this case, it clearly states according to its terms. As you know, I've said this all along. This is something I've been consistent on for the last 12 years, that you need to read the instrument and you can only enforce that which is in clear writing. Okay? And, oh, by the way, how many signatures are on this this uh, contract that they're trying to enforce. Eh? How many signatures are on the contract that they're trying to enforce? How can you be in pre? Uh, how can you be in breach of a contract when the contract is not ratified? Not ratified. Okay. There's no signature on it. Now, what they're going to say is by their actions. You saying, well, I've received a loan in return for a loan I have received, that you're admitting that they took action, they gave some consideration, and therefore they don't need to necessarily sign it. That's why, again, it's so important to challenge the fact and, and do the affidavit or whatever you want to say that uh, or however you want to do it by questioning them, what was given to me prior to me giving you the note. And, and, and again, that goes back to that case, uh, which I believe was a made-up case, but still the questioning is really beautifully done which it says, isn't it true that you took it and deposited it and used it at full face value? Yes. So then the instrument had full face value? Yes. And once they got the banker, the bankster, and this is, again, I believe it's made up because they didn't refer to a case, but when you do, and if you did get the banker, one of them, on the, on the stand and ask them, did you take the note? Yes. Did you deposit it? Yes. Did the... Did the uh, did the double entry bookkeeping entry of the bank show that it was a credit to the bank? Yes. On the one side, and an obligation to the bank? Yes. So therefore, it is, in fact, a credit instrument? Yes. You see, once you go through that whole pixelation of answering these tiny little questions, you would then begin to show that it is a fact that your instrument, or that instrument you put your name on, in fact, is traded and used as a credit instrument, not as a debt instrument. Okay, um, and once again, uh, I love to ask, well, what did you give me in return for my note? I know we gave you the house. Oh, no, you didn't. Yes, we did. No, we didn't. Well, okay, did you ever own the house? No. Well, then how can you give me something you didn't have? Oops. Okay, and if you notice at the very beginning, my question, I said, what did I get in return for my note? Clearly, you said that you gave a house, which we just discovered you didn't, but clearly you indicated you gave some value in return for something of value, right? Yes. Great. So you now just admitted that I gave you something of value first, not the other way around. So by definition, you did not give a loan, and I did not receive a loan. Therefore, you're not a lender, as defined, and I'm not a borrower, as defined. And that just completely, that just, I did that to a, um, the vice, uh, did that to a vice president of a bank, um, and she just, the only thing she could do was just 
pierce her lips and try to burn holes through me. Um, and I also went further. I said, okay, uh, I did it the other way. I said, um, what did I get in exchange for my note? And I pulled out, you know, Federal Reserve notes. I said, did I get these? She said, yes. And I said, this is, um, these are obligations of the United States. Is that correct? She said, yes. And I said, okay, hold on a minute. According to you, I gave you a debt note. She said, yes. I said, but we just also said that the United States is trillions of dollars in debt. Is that correct? Yes. So these are actually debt notes. These Federal Reserve notes are actually debt notes, aren't they? She said, yes. I said, so let me get it straight here. I gave you a debt note. You gave me a debt note in return. That sounds like an exchange. Where was the loan? So I approached it a slightly different way, but I got the same result. So I'm giving you guys a whole bunch of jewels here. I mean, it's really kind of funny. There's not many people on. There's probably one of the better ones. For those people that are interested in actually doing something about it and, and want some tools. These are tools, man. Uh, what does it say? The right to have and bear arms. Here's the arms you need to bear. Uh, an, un, uh, an unexplained gap in the chain of title may present a fact issue on the question of ownership. And there is Martin versus Gibraltar Bank versus Farley, uh, Texas up, San Antonio, writ denied. Uh, Jen Jernigan versus Bank One, Texas, NA. So there's like three cases that do that. Uh, let me see here. Dealing with legal theory that's missing. Um, oh, here it is. Yep, I knew it was here somewhere. See, they address everything. It's beautiful. As a matter of Texas law, then, the homeowners such as the Millers do have a cognizable cause of action to challenge a party's right to foreclose on their property. In their motion, defendants ignore this well-established Texas precedent and focus instead on recent federal court decisions dealing with a, theory, a legal theory dismissively dubbed as show me the note. And that was Wells Fargo's BAC Home Loan Servicing, LP, and that was in Texas April 2011. So there it is, the show me the note. Um, that didn't fly, and the reason was because they allow that they don't have to necessarily have the actual note they only need to show that they had it and were entitled to payments under the note at the time that it was lost, stolen, or destroyed. Those cases are correct so far as they go. This Again, reading from this case. Those cases are correct so far as they go. As discussed above, holding the original note is one way to establish the right to foreclose, but it is not the only way. Texas uh, Property Code allows a mortgage servicer to administer deeds of trust foreclosure without producing the original note. That I don't understand, and I got that in red. Uh, uh, so defendant contends that the plaintiff's petition is based on nothing more than the legal theory rejected by those cases. While plaintiff's petition at one point does suggest that possession of the original note is a necessary rather than a sufficient basis a sufficient basis to foreclose, the balance of their pleading is broader than that. The crux of the plaintiff's claim is that none of the defendants can show a proper chain of title to establish a right to foreclose under the Texas Property Code as mortgage E of mortgage or mortgage servicer. It is undisputed that Defendant Mellon, which obtained the order to proceed 
with the foreclosure was neither the original lender or mortgagee. Instead, Mellon claims to be the current mortgagee by virtue of an assignment from a third party dated January 25th, 2011. By the way, uh, I noted that that was um, way after the closing of of the um, of the um, the Remick, which is another issue, uh, as I mentioned before, that the that can be gone after that it is void. Uh, plaintiff claims, continuing, plaintiff claims at 19 that there is no public record of any assignment or transfer to that third party or anyone else from the original mortgagee. Now, that's interesting here. I think they're going to, I don't want to spoil it, so let's keep reading and see if they address it. But it had to do with, with them not recording it. Here, they require it. The traditional way to prove chain of title is via filing a record in the county clerk's office. The Texas Property Code provides that, quote, if the security interest has been assigned of record, the last person to whom the security interest has been assigned of record is the mortgagee. And that's at subsection 51.0014C. A Texas statute declares that any transfer or assignment of a recorded mortgage must also be recorded in the office of the county clerk. So in Texas, they have that. I don't believe they have that in, in the state that I'm in uh, or on or, any, or some other states, but Texas has it. So anyone listening from Texas, there you go. you got a wonderful thing. If it's not recorded, then they haven't, then it's not. They, let me read it again. Under 51.001 in, in parentheses 4, parentheses C, a Texas statute declares that any transfer or assignment of a recorded mortgage must also be recorded in the office of the county clerk. Um, a little red flag there. Notice it says recorded mortgage. Now, if it's not a recorded mortgage, that may not apply. Continuing, to release, transfer, assign, or take another action relating to an instrument that is filed, registered, or recorded in the office of the county clerk, a person must file, register, or record another instrument relating to the action in the same manner as the original instrument was required to be filed, registered, or recorded. So there you have it. Uh, Texas Law Government Code 192.07a, and this is added. Um, that's the one there. Sorry, that's the one. Uh, no reported case has uh, has in interpreted this 1989 law, the legal consequences of failing to comply with that statutory command are unclear, and the subject of current litigation, see Dallas County versus Mears Corp. Ooh, i got to go look that one up. Let me highlight that real fast. I missed it. I don't know what I'm going to do here. Let's try a different color. Running out of colors here. Maybe that will be helpful. Yeah, we'll do that. In any event, the absence of such required filing is arguably some evidence, so that gives you an idea, it's not the entire evidence, that no such assignment or transfer has occurred as the plaintiffs here contend. So the court's admitting the fact that it's not been recorded as certainly a sign or an indicator that there was no transfer made. 
It is true, as Mellon notes, that the last assignment of the deed of trust from J.P. Morgan Chase to Mellon was filed and recorded in the county clerk's office. But that is only one link in a chain of unknown length and does not, and excuse me, and does nothing to bridge the remaining gap to the original lender. If Mellon's assigner had no valid rights in the note or deed of trust, then no such rights were conveyed to Mellon by the assignment. Bingo. When a party seeking to foreclose fails to show an unbroken chain of title, then the homeowner may be entitled to an injunction against the threatened foreclosure. And that was Levings versus Mills in uh, 2004. For these reasons, the court finds that plaintiff's petition states a claim for cognizable legal relief based on theories of wrongful foreclosure, trespass to try title, and quiet title. That's how they phrase it there. It's rather interesting, I found. Um, It's called wrongful foreclosure, comma, trespass to try and quiet title. Um, And this kind of goes back, because I did a quiet title which failed here in Maryland, but I was also going to do a thing, I was starting a research called true title. I was even bringing action for true title which I think is probably the way to go instead of quiet title. Uh, in other words, if you can't get the whole nugget, at least get a piece of it and then get another piece of it, another piece of it. As I've mentioned before, tiny little pieces, baby steps, lay your foundation. Standing to challenge assignment of security. And so here we go with the standing. Very important. Defendants argue alternatively that plaintiffs have no standing to challenge an assignment of the security interest because they were not parties to the assignment. In support of their assignment, defendants cite nine recent decisions from federal district courts in this state, in parentheses, six of which were issued by the same magistrate judge, not a judge, but a magistrate judge, comma, with no, excuse me, let me stop, and and parentheses, comma, which do indeed affirm that proposition. However, This is huge. However, none of these decisions cite any Texas case law or statute, and all but one explicitly rely upon a single federal case, Elkridge versus Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation. How many times have I seen that one quoted? Which cites no authority at all, state or federal. So here, technically in my mind, the court here is admitting that they know of unlawful foreclosures and nobody's done anything about it. Because it says, however, none of these decisions, that the whole interest here, let me repeat it again. This, this is really important because I've read a whole bunch of cases on this. Defendants argue or turn it that the plaintiffs <laughs> have no standing to challenge an assignment of the security interest because they were not parties to the assignment. In support of their argument, defendants cite nine recent decisions from federal district courts in this state, six of which were issued by the same magistrate judge, which do indeed affirm this proposition. However, none of these decisions cite any Texas case law or statute, and all but one explicitly rely upon a single federal case, Elkridge versus Federal Home Loan Mortgage Corporation, which that Elkridge versus Home Loan Mortgage Corporation which cites no authority at all, state or federal, thereby showing 
It's just they have the requirement to cite authorities as well, not just you. They must as well if you hold their feet to the fire. It's interesting the court is actually pointing this out. And I think the only reason the court's pointing this out is because the defendants argued that the plaintiffs had no standing and they relied on those cases. So they had to address those to get rid of it because they raised that issue. I don't know if the other side challenged it or brought this up with the case, but the courts clearly did. In fact, Texas has long followed the common law rule. Ooh, let me highlight that. All you common law people out there, all you perps, peeps, excuse me, all you peeps, all you peoples. In fact, Texas has long followed the common law rule which permits a debtor to assert against an assignee any ground that renders the assignment void or invalid. See Tri-Cities Construction, Inc. versus American National Insurance Company, 523 S. period W. period 2D, 426, 430. So page 426, 430. Uh, Texas Civil App, Houston, First District, 1975. Glass, G-L-A-S-S-V, Carpenter, 330, SW2D, 530, 537. Texas Civil App, San Antonio, 1959. The Glass Court endorsed as authoritative the following summary of the rule, which still appears in the current version of Corpus Juris Secundum. And if you remember, I believe it was somebody in, uh, in the chat mentioned that they liked Corpus Juris Secundum better than American Jurisprudence because of the way it was organized and laid out. I have yet to look at that. Um, I've been reading so much other stuff, but I intend to do that. But that's a heads up for people. Um, we don't have the Corpus Juris Secundum on a disc. We do have American Jurisprudence in a, in a program. So it actually makes it easy to access if you get the, electro- the, uh, the uh, program. A debtor may generally assert against an assignee all equities or defenses existing against the assignor prior to notice of the assignment. Any matters rendering the assignment absolutely invalid or ineffective and the lack of plaintiff's title or right to sue. But if the assignment is effective to pass legal title, the debtor cannot interpose defects or objections which merely render the assignment voidable at the election of the assignor or those standing in his or her shoes. So again, it just kind of pounds it home uh, one more time that if it's voidable, it's completely different than something that is void. Um, the da, 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 da. and then it also it is C six uh, A CJS assignments section one thirty two database updated by May twelfth uh, two thousand and twelve. Emphasis added the current edition of the American Jurisprudence states the same rule more succinctly while adding the rationale. The obligor of an assigned claim may defend a suit brought by the assignee on any ground that renders the assignment void or invalid, but may not defend on any ground that renders the assignment voidable only. Because the only interest or right that an obligor of a chain of a claim has in the assignment is to ensure that he or she will not have to pay the same claim twice. So 
um, that is where they, um, above that they talked about whether they had standing alone or not. Oh, actually, it's down here. I'm sorry. It's a long case. Um, six am juror to the assignment, subsection 119. Examples of avoidable, 832. Defenses include the statute of frauds. Oh, here it is. This is what I want to talk about. Examples of avoidable. This is really hard for me to get, but I, I just explained to you why. The examples of avoidable defenses include statute of frauds, and that's Harding Company versus Senderio, uh, fraud in the inducement, Kansas Life Insurance Company versus Bank of True Scott, lack of capacity as a minor, uh, Dairyland Music, Mutants versus Roman, and mutual mistakes. So those are considered to be voidable. And that goes back to what I said before, but of course a bell went off in my head when I saw fraud in the inducement. I was like, oh my God. Even the statute of frauds, which is really, you know, I'm going to relook that up and look at that case. But um, as I said, if it's fraud in the inducement, that meant that you were a party to that transaction and you can void it. You just need to do it. If you don't do it, it's still considered to be valid. Plaintiffs here do not assert these or any other voidable defenses to Mellon's assignment. Instead, plaintiffs assert that standing alone, this single assignment from a third party is ineffective to establish a right to foreclose because it does not show a proper assignment of the original security instrument to the third party. Uh, Texas courts routinely allow a homeowner to challenge the chain of assignments by which a party claimed the right to foreclose. Now, my friend has one where the allonge was not firmly attached and it was not in the original filing. And there is case law and there's no date on the allonge. So why is that important? Because without a date on it, it cannot show when the allonge was signed. And because it was not presented at the time of the filing, meant that there was no indication that they had taken assignment at the time that they foreclosed, therefore they were not authorized. You see how that works out? It's not that the assignment was void, it's that there was no assignment. There's no indication that the assignment was made to the party who was doing the foreclosing until it showed up like a year and a half later in the Court of Special Appeals. And it was showed up as a separate piece of paper, no stake holes, no nothing indicating it was actually attached. And if you go look at, again, UCC3, it talks about how an allonge must be firmly attached as to become part of the instrument. So if they've got page one through nine in the signature page and they don't have the allonge, then it's an indication that it's not attached because nobody would do one through nine or one through 14 or one through 37 pages and not do the other, the last page. makes no sense, particularly if it's the signature page. So that's why we're trying to get the court here in, in Maryland to recognize the fact that without the alarms, there's no indication that the party bringing the action was entitled to do the foreclosure. Uh, and they cannot produce the alarms later on because Maryland law says, as most states' law say, at you, when you bring the action, you must be entitled. So if they didn't have the, 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 the power or authority or the right um, to do a foreclosure, 
at the time, because the assignment was not made until afterwards, they didn't have the power or um, or right to um, do a foreclosure at that time. doesn't mean they can't now say, oh, well, we got it. You launched and now we firmly attached it, although that's going to be hard for them to do considering they have put it into the court as a separate piece of paper with no indication that it was attached. And the other thing is that you'll find in almost all these cases that the of the right um, or actually the privilege to attach an launch is predicated upon there being no room for any signature. No room. And that includes front and back. Now, most of these, there's plenty of room to put uh, whatever they want on the front, the signature, particularly since it's so small the way they do it all these things. It's small. It's just a little thing that's paid the order of, and then it's left blank as to who it's paid the order of, which is also incomplete, uh, and then has a signature in the name. That's it. It's a tiny little thing. So that's all. That's what they have. And I've even seen it where they have it on the back. So clearly they know that they can put something on the back. So why is it not on the back of the original note? Okay? So that does more than just make it suspect, doesn't it? Uh, Defendant's final and weak. Okay, so now then the defendant's final and weakest argument is that homeowners like plaintiffs, quote, will not be prejudiced if the chain of assignments from original letter to foreclosing entity were immune to debtor challenge. Uh, After all the arguments, uh, argument apparently goes, the Miller owe the money to somebody. In truth, the potential prejudice is both plain and severe. Foreclosure by the wrong entity does not dispose the homeowner's debt and leaves them vulnerable to another action on the same note by the true creditor. Banks are neither private attorney general nor bounty hunters armed with a roving commission to seek out defaulting homeowners and take away their homes in satisfaction of some other bank's deed of trust. MasterCard has no right to sue for debts rung up on the Visa card. And that remains true even if MasterCard has been assigned the rights of another third party like American Express. Unless and until a complete chain of transaction back to the original lender is shown, MasterCard remains a stranger to the original transaction with no claim against the debtor. And that is as fair as is a fair description of this case in its present posture. In sum, a standing issue is lurking here, but only as to the defendants, not the plaintiffs, because see, they, the, the defendants were arguing that the plaintiffs didn't have standing, and the court kind of turned it on them. Beautiful. The court concludes that under Texas law, homeowners have legal right, excuse me, legal standing to challenge the validity of effect and the, or effectiveness of an assignment or chain of assignments under which a party claims the right to foreclose on their property. Accordingly, plaintiffs, in other words, even though they weren't party to the transaction, when it comes to a foreclosure, now they became a party to the, tra- to the validity of the transaction. Accordingly, plaintiffs have properly stated claims for declaratory and injunctive relief based on wrongful foreclosure, trespass to try and quiet title. Uh, this is interesting here, kind of confirms what we said before. Other claims. Plaintiff state court uh, the plaintiff state court petition includes a variety of other causes of action, 
all more or less centered upon the threatened foreclosure. These include breach of contract, tortuous interference with existing contract, violation of the Texas Deceptive Trade Practices Act, statutory fraud, fraud in real estate, and violation of the Federal Fair Debt Collection Practices Act. Plaintiffs have requested the opportunity to replead these claims in accordance with the federal rules. In light of the court's foregoing ruling, it may well be that some or all of these claims are now superfluous and need not be pursued. Rather than engage in an extended and possibly futile analysis of these vaguely pleaded claims, the court will simply order the plaintiff to replead any of these claims they still wish to pursue, paying careful attention to Rule 11 of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure as well as the substantive elements of these state and federal causes of action. So, again, the court doesn't want to address anymore. They're basically saying, hey, we got it, you got it, you got it, you did it, you, we, this is it, you got the case won there. You don't need to raise all these other issues. But if you want to, make sure that you plead them properly because apparently they weren't pled properly. Conclusion. For the foregoing reasons, defendant's motion to dismiss is denied. However, if plaintiffs intend to seek relief based on any any claims other than wrongful foreclosure, trespass, or tri title and quiet title, they are directed to file an amended complaint asserting such claims on or before September 7, 2012. Wow, 2012. This is an old case. How come we haven't heard about it? Um, and there we go. All right. Um, anybody got any questions, comments, or otherwise? Russ said, I got a text from him. He said he's on his way, on his way, on his way. On my way home. We'll call in. Okay, waiting on it. Waiting on you. Everybody's going to be calm at that time, but we'll get a recording of it, so it's okay. Because he has a unique way of sharing things, and I just thought this, even though it's a sidetrack, this kind of goes to the fundamental issues um, which of, of every case and, and practically everything is that they have to, you know, they have to show by what authority that they're bringing in action. It's it's the same thing over and over. There he is. Perfect timing. Dun, 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 dun. Hey, hey, it's hey, hey, just, hey, How do you hey, hush? <laughs> it's a must. You must have a rush. I just concluded reading the Miller versus Homecoming Financial LLC. If you haven't read it, brother, you need to read. I'll send you. Yeah, I, you got to listen to this recording, and I'll also send you my highlighted version. You'll just like you'll light up. We now have all of what one, two. We have what one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine people. Oh, we're back up to nine people. We're down to almost three people at one point. So they must have known that you were coming on. It's the spirit world letting people know. Okay. All you fans of Russ, come on, unless they're here to attack you, which they know they're oh, not going to be. Attacked. I just got finished picking cotton in the cold weather. Come on, bring it on. Oh, man, come on. You, your fingers must be frozen by now. <laughs> so how was your dinner with your daughter? Oh, I I, uh, I, I, her, I gave her, I, we took out the dinner, I spanked her and threw her over the balcony. Uh-oh, here we go again. Okay. So I guess she's happy now because that's what you do on somebody's birthday, isn't it? 
That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. It was a, what was it, sock to grow a block, a pinch to grow an inch, and you always spank yeah. him for the number of times. I always give him one for, for growth, I think it was, or some silly stuff like that. Uh, yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I just concluded reading this case, uh, Miller versus uh, uh, Homecomings Financial LLC, which was a part of it was quoted uh, in there, was quoting another case, which was, I'm sorry, this, yeah, this was the Miller. Well, I'm getting confused here. Yeah, Vanova, the Vanova and New Century Mortgage was quoting this case. I went and looked up this case and found this case addressed almost all the issues that were lacking and, and defeating everybody trying to do wrongful foreclosures in the past. So it's a real, real powerful case. Anyway, that's done. I mentioned here already that uh, the whole reason for this is because they, no matter what and who is bringing an action, they must show that they have the capacity, the authority to bring the action. And if they can't show that they have the capacity and authority to take the action, in other words, their authority means to be authorized. And the only way that any public servant can be authorized to do something is it must be in writing. They have no power, none, zip, zero, nada, except that which is specifically granted in writing in law. Am I correct, sir? That's correct. All right. So the first thing that we need to challenge, which I call the affirmative defenses in common law, I believe that's what people are doing successfully. The ones that win are challenging jurisdiction based on who has authority and the fact that they never had authority, just like this case we were talking about earlier, is now Carl's going to have to go back and unwind this man's confession or and plea deal under... And I would, I, again, I don't ever uh, restrain myself to not using statute code or law that binds them. I just make sure that I let them know it binds them and does not bind me. I'm not subject to it. I'm merely telling their bosses that this is what the law says and that you need to get your agents under control. Um, and that, to me, is why you want to use a statute code, just like this case here was in federal court, but the federal court was saying, hey, Texas code, now, in another state, they would have to uh, administer according to that state's. But according to Texas code, they must show a complete chain of title. So the federal courts are bound by enforcing the state uh, legis the legislation of the state. So the same thing is, in my mind, is, is true here that in all cases, if it's not in writing, they don't have the authority. And that which is in writing must also be constitutional. Otherwise, we would be arguing uh, that uh, the motor vehicle code is unconstitutional. The fact that nobody, including ourselves, is arguing that the motor vehicle code is unconstitutional is because it's not for those that actually read it and understand the concepts uh, that, and the principles that are clearly defined and specified therein, which is the contract, which, wait a minute, in order for you to be subject to that contract, don't you need to have a contract? Or being, yeah, you have to have a contract with them. Am I correct on that as well? That's correct. All right. So I'm going to let you t t take it from here. Well, let's go with the foundation, uh, which we were mentioning. We had a conversation today, which is excellent. And that is that if you're not a creation of the state, then you're not a subject of the state, which means you're not subject to the state. Am I correct on that? That's correct. So I'm asking, am I asking the right questions? 
yes, you are. And is that the secret to uh, winning a case? Yes. Wow. Okay, that's the end of the show. Thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. <laughs> that's it. I'm going to go home and go to bed. I'm going to eat a piece of cherry pie, whip, pour whipped cream on my head, and go to bed. There you go. There you go. Cover uh, the head. As, as we said before, it's about asking the right questions. You can, you can. Uh, there's many avenues of approach, and we talked about it before. You can do a FOIA request. You can talk to them on the telephone. I don't talk to them on the phone anymore because you don't know who you're talking to. What I like to do is go down there personally and look at them eyeball to eyeball, belly to belly, and you should see these people when you ask them questions. It's very simple and direct questions, the right questions, and they never have an answer for you. Now, what they're going to do is they're going to back up and get defensive, and, and you know where they're going to go? They're going to back up and going to fall right back in the same place. <sighs> The statutes, codes, and regulations that come in the Constitution apply. Well, well do, you have any, do you have any evidence that applies? No, because I'm simply uh, physically located on the land. No, you don't. They're the ones that swore the oath. I did not. I did not write the Constitution. They swore an oath to something. It's a covenant between them and the Constitution. It has nothing to do with me. So what we discussed earlier has to do with what people are overlooking are two things. Statutory construction and the legislative intent. And these lawyers have no idea what the hell they're talking about. They keep saying, statute, statute, statute. Excuse me, did you look at the statutory construction of the object and the and the subject of the tax or what you're trying to impose on me? Can you please identify where I fit into that? Where do I fit into that section, uh, this situs, and where do I meet the criteria? Because now I'm going to come after you for, I heard this in Cincinnati a long time ago, it has to do with, the state has, has failed to meet the necessary burden of proof. You get them every time with that. They have failed to meet the necessary burden of proof. So, for instance, you go down there and you file and record your property. They're taking, a, they're taking the assumption that if you file, or are you reading something into the contract, which is a warranty deed, that says, yes, I'm going to come down there and file the, the uh and record the property that I'm, and in turn, I'm going to pay a property. It does not say that on the tax, on the, on the deed. Show me where it says that. And when you talk to the the the, uh, the people at the desk and they said, "Did you read the contract?" No, you did not. All you did, you were lazy enough. You just filed it, and then you make the assumption. Well, I'm challenging you on this right now. They can't. There's no answer. So my question is, what is the warranty deed? What is the the mortgage deed, what is that that makes them assume that they can attach a property tax? Well, my guess is that they're treating that as commercial paper. Because what says on that mortgage deed, that mortgage deed, or the warranty deed, there is a value attached to it, such as if Colum gets a loan from the bank of 250000 buckaroos, he's going to pay monthly, every 30 days. Don't you think the county is going to be recording that as um as a commercial paper? Yes. Don't they have an interest in it? If you look at a dictionary, and I'm looking at a dictionary right now, it's called Merriam-Webster's Dictionary. It says right there what the interest is. Now, another question when I ask them, look at the driver license, look at the, the, the number that they put on your um, your mortgage deed when they filed it, and, and Colin and I talked about this today. Did they put? Did they establish an account for you unbeknownst to you? And did, if they did, did they do it? with your knowledge and consent. No, they did not. Number two, if you're paying it to a property tax, it goes into an account that they said that nobody has an account like you, you give it to them, they put it in an account, and they put it in another account. Are these guys creating bonds out there? Yeah. 
Well, we got to go back and we got to tiptoe down there and talk to the county commissioners, the city attorney, city manager, whoever that is, and we got to do we got to do our own investigation. So, ladies and gentlemen, put your Sherlock Holmes hat on and get your magnifying glass because we got a lot of snooping around because we're getting closer to the answer, folks. Why? Colin and I talked about them today. You're asking the right questions. Don't go in there and talk about. Uh-huh. The judge, you got a flag, an American flag with a gold fringe around. You got a gold eagle on top of it. And I think with a military jurisdiction. And when I'm standing in this courtroom, I'm getting dizzy because I think I'm out of see what maritime advocacy jurisdiction. Oh, cut the crap, will you? It's nothing to do with that. Like Colin and I discussed today, you look in the statute, and that's where the answer is. So don't go in there with your sailor hat on or black billed cap on and say, Arr, har, har, har. what seas? What do the captain? Arr, har. Nothing about that, folks. Look at the statute. You get them every time. You good? Although, although, Russ, it, you could, if you instead of making statements like I foolishly did, um, you could ask the question. Uh, I've actually found that they're willing to share you. I said, I, I, you know, I, you know, could you clear something up for me, Judge? I, I really don't quite understand this. I'm told, and according to this and that and the other thing, it says that anytime the American flag has that gold fringe that it means we're under admiral. Are we under admiralty law? So you could ask the question, and then when the judge says, no, we're not, and they say, well, well what, what, are, what are we under? Is this an administrative? Is it, you know, because what, what you mentioned, uh, you, you had three of them. I can't remember what all they are. Wouldn't it be a good idea to go ahead and set that down at the beginning and say, I, I just want to be sure where I'm at and what I'm doing so I can act accordingly? Again, asking the right question. Yes. right questions, folks, you're going to get an answer. Ask the right questions, but we're not doing that. Well, we're not asking any questions at all. What's happening is that we all go off half-caught because we're reading some crap that somebody put on there, which really makes no difference anyway, because if you're in admiralty law, guess what? Okay. Uh, let me just give me a couple minutes here, and I'll read up on admiralty law so I can act accordingly. Uh, you know, I require recess so that I can go study up a little bit on amateur law. I'm not, I'm not familiar with it. Whatever it is, you know, just as administrative, uh, if he says it's an administrative law, the first thing I say, well, what evidence is there on the record that I'm part of this administration? There you go. That's right. That's right. See, what you can say is that when you go in there and you ask questions, excuse me, I'm kind of confused. Before I enter, before I enter an initial plea, I need to know what kind of jurisdiction that you and the court are operating from. Since you're sitting on that bench, you are the court. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, let me see. Is it A? Is it admiralty? No. Is it maritime? No. Is it uh, common law? Court. you got to set the record straight. So you'll say, let me guess. Is it statutory? Well, there, bingo. There, you got your answer. Now you can proceed. Now you prepare your affirmative defenses. There you go. Exactly. I'm going to answer Lawfan, by the way. Lawfan says, what if admiralty is a private jurisdiction, which, of course, admiralty is not private jurisdiction, but let's take your question. And the judge has no duty to tell you you are under admiralty jurisdiction. Okay, the, the beauty about asking a question is it requires an answer. Once he answers it, well, however he answers it, it's now on the record, isn't it? And you yeah. can hold his feet to the fire on that. That's correct. And, of course, if he says no, then that means that you must ask another question, right? That's if right. he says no, it's not admiralty jurisdiction or, or whatever, 
then you must go, well, obviously, you haven't clarified yet. Remember, the first thing is clarify, 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 then verify, right? So clarify, verify, validate, authenticate, and authorize. Those are the five requirements, the five R's, okay, which I created this list, and it just works so effectively. So when you're clarifying, that's what you're doing. I, before we get started, I'd like to clear, and you know what? You raise your hand. I raise my hand a little because they go, blah, 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 they start, oh, I raise my hand. Hold on a minute. Before we go any further, I need to clarify a few things. Uh, I've said, uh, excuse me, hold on a minute. I need to, before we go, uh, before we move any further, I need to get a few things on the record is how I did it one time before when I wanted to open my mouth and make statements. Now I would say, I want to, I want to clarify some things. So you would go to the next, when he says no to admiralty, then you would say, oh, is this that? Is it this? Is it that? Until you get a yes. Once you get the yes, now you've got clarification. So now let's, let's verify. Let's verify that I am, if this is an administrative court, let's verify that I am part of the administration to be administered by this court, which is kind of more clarification, isn't it? So I just want to jump in there and answer his question. Continue, sir. Once you got that on the record, there's a court of record, then you're set. Then you press proceed. And if they're not recording it, what do you do, Russ? Okay, what was the question again? If if you can see and you ask him, is, and that's another question we should be asking, is this a oh, um, a competent court uh, of jurisdiction, and is it a court of record? And then I verify, again, clarify that. I say, is it, is it, first of all, is it a court of record, and is it being recorded? Those are two separate issues, aren't they? Why don't you explain the difference real quick? Okay, you talk about the, uh, the, you talk about the court of competent jurisdiction? Yeah, court of competent jurisdiction, is this a court of record? That's one question. And then the second question is, is this being recorded? Because if it's not being recorded, I would, I would uh, uh, request to record it um, um, and make note on the, on the record that you're recording it and that it's, it's not being recorded. And I, Actually, I would probably move to uh, – I don't know. What would you do there, Russ? Well, another question I want to ask him, too, is that uh, another important question we're going to ask him is this court – Lawfully in session is this court lawfully in? Um, uh, let's see, lawfully in session, convened, or lawfully convened. And the reason why you want to ask that question because uh, under Judge Wapner, thirty years ago, when he got kicked off the radio show, uh, he said to the um, to the plaintiff, says, "I read your complaint and I've known you've been sworn." So if the complaint is not been sworn to, it's not lawfully convened. There you go. It's not lawfully convened. Right. So why, there's more questions. That's that why, yeah. Go ahead. That's why the gentleman down in South Carolina, when he went to before magistrate's court, these are courts of no record. So what does that tell you, folks? It's not a constitutional court. It's a kangaroo court, and these courts will never, ever be lawfully convened or lawfully in session. Why? Because they're taking a complaint. It's never been sworn to by oath of affirmation. Like the police officer, he said, Officer Dimwit, he said, Duh! Oh, that black guy, he went over to 10 miles over the public speed limit, and uh, I'm going to write a narrative on a ticket, and I'm going to weapo going to court. You know, he can't do that, sir. It has to be based on oath of affirmation. Did not this officer take an oath to protect and to preserve the Constitution? Yes. Well, he committed treason. So, therefore, how in the hell can you issue 
and issue a plea, folks, under any circumstances. In that kind of circumstances, you can't. But they do all the time. Yes, but we found a way how to get out of that. We did that in Ohio. Here's what we did. We went before one of these muni courts called municipal courts, and the judge said, well, how are we going to enter a plea? We said, uh, excuse me, sir. I made contact with the Bureau of Motor Vehicles. We have an administrative hearing, so we're going to be going up there next week, and we're going to talk to him. Here's my paperwork. And they said, okay, goodbye, Mr. Goodbye, Mr. whoever you are. So they said goodbye. So that's how you get out of that. Say that again? What you do when you have a traffic ticket, make sure that if you're going to go into court four weeks later, you contact the Bureau of Motor Vehicles and ask him or request for administrative uh, uh, hearing to resolve the issue that he has to deal with the traffic violation. Ah, that's right. You're taking you're taking it out of the court's jurisdiction, and we did that before. Yeah. Well, the other way too. The other way too was I mentioned, uh, which I did. Anytime there's, if you're in district court or the lowest court, which is where they start off with, uh, which is definitely an administrative court. It's like a preliminary court, and that's for idiots who just want to consent and go along the the go alongers to get alongers. Um, but what, what you can do, what I did anyway after reading it in this state, that the moment you require, request, or ask for a trial by jury, immediately the jurisdiction of that court is gone. Right. And it was a wonderful test because I pushed it all the way to the last second. I got a whole bunch of stuff. I asked a bunch of questions. You know, I poked this this, this bear quite a few times, um, uh, had a little fun with him here and there. They got up on there and testified and did all their stupid shenanigans. I got to cross-examine, and they stopped me from cross-examining the pertinent issues about the code and statute and stuff. They never let you ask them questions about it, and yet they're enforcing it, yeah. which makes no sense at all to me. But I got it on the record, and I said, oh, you, you know, I, and I asked my questions, you know, put it on the record, because it was being recorded, court of record. And, um, and um, actually, no, it wasn't a court of record. It was, a, it, was a, it, was a, it was recorded. It was not a court of record. The district courts are not a court of record. It is just merely being recorded, but I can use it uh, when I sue them later on because what they were doing is a colored law action. Anyway, the, so I waited to the very last second, just before the gavel came down, he was going to you know, convict me or whatever it was, and I sat there and said, I require a trial by jury. Boom! His whole attitude, which had been hostile and mean and nasty and aggressive and he, you know, he was making the case for the, for the, for the prostituter and so on. All of a sudden, it completely switched. He was, a, he was about his business and he was shuffling papers and everybody shifted and the, the whole, everything shifted. The attitude and all of a sudden, next thing goes, okay, fine, you know, sit over here and wait for that. And I sat over there and they gave me a piece of paper. Went to the, the, the next higher court, which is a circuit court. So uh, that is a truth. If, if you're worse, if you're in a district court. And you you feel like you're going to lose it at the very last second. Say, well, I require a trial by jury. And um, that immediately, once that happens, it goes to the appeal court because they no longer have jurisdiction. And what they do then is they go to the appeals court, which is a circuit court. Then they they sometimes they give a trial by jury, sometimes they don't. Sometimes you have to push for it because they'll try to get you away from it. And it's a de novo. In case you don't know what that means. Huh? I got one for you. Try de novo. De novo means all over again as if it never happened. So you're not appealing. You're not appealing it. Remember that. An appeal, when you go to a higher court and you're appealing the actions of a competent court, you're now appealing, did the court err? So if the court did not err and you lost, you're not going to win on appeal. 
That's why you have to make your record to show that the court is error. Okay? Thank you. And that's why you have to object in order to preserve your right to appeal. When it comes to a district court, you don't have to do any of that stuff when you appeal because that appeal or request for a trial by jury, whichever one you want to do, it is a de novo, which means it starts all over again. And when they don't answer, then you get them on what is called, they are pleading nihil dissent. Nihil dissent? Spiel? It's called nihil dissent. Excuse me, sir. Judge, I asked the prosecutor attorney. We did that in North Carolina. I said, excuse me, the prosecuting attorney. I'm excuse the judge. Uh, this bald and black guy, which is me, we sent the prosecuting attorney a uh, motion for uh, answering counterclaim. We did a motion for a bill of particulars, and we did a, uh, a motion for a strike and dismiss. Uh, failed to answer, did not do his duty. He had a fiduciary to do so. Therefore, I'm going to plead on his behalf. Nihil dissent. Thank you very much. Let's go get a sandwich. Neil, spell that, please. Nihil dissent. N-I-H-I-L-D-I-C-I-T, which in Latin which means he said nothing. Thank you. Perfect. Now, another question you want to ask the prosecuting attorney if you ever go up against a district attorney, my first question is this, Edie, I'll say, excuse me, sir, excuse me, ma'am, excuse me, uh, I just got off the plantation, I'm kind of tired and hungry. You say that you're a district attorney, is that correct? Yes. What district are you adjudicating this case? What district are you claiming to have jurisdiction? Thank you. Let's go get another sandwich. Bye. Mm-hmm. Look at the, folks, folks, I'm telling you, get this dictionary and look at the word district, folks. These are words that they're telling you that they ain't got jurisdiction over you at all. Thank you. Yep. Okay, I eat my watermelon, get a spank, and throw myself over the balcony. Thank you very much. Excuse me. That's it. I'm telling people, we call it the, the answers are right in our face. I tell people, reach out there and grab it, folks, and be bold about it. These people are not to be feared. Yeah. Do you do you lot of words, folks. I mean, do you fear your, your house cleaner? Do you fear your bodyguard? You know? Do you feel do you fear your trash man, your trash pickup guy? Do you fear the street sweeper? If they're black, yes. You do, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the law fan got he, he got what he came here for, he got a spanking. <laughs> yeah, his name is Mr. Mojo. <laughs> but yeah, um um oh by the way, um remind me, I want you to watch this video. I think it's really interesting. Uh, and I'm not quite sure. Yeah, I don't think it's gonna have any difference uh, on anything, but just remind me. Um no 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 no. Okay, so the fundamental okay, let's go to conceptualization here, because that seems to be a big thing. These things um uh, these issues or these 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 are the particulars of how to do it, and for the people that are having a hard time getting their head wrapped around it, uh, the foundation is very simple. If you if you get rid of the people, there is no government. If you get rid of the government, you just there's no government. The people are self-governing. Um, and and ask yourself a simple question, as I said before, and as 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 he was speaking very quickly. What Russ was also reiterating is that where is the entity known as what you're calling the defendant? As I said before, 
I can't wait to go into court one time and say, um, I wish to be relieved of my duty or obligation because I signed that piece of paper. And what we really did when we signed that piece of paper on the street is we became the bail bondsman for the defendant. And uh, what you need to do is go in there. I cannot find. I have done my due diligence. I have looked everywhere. I've looked high and low, and I cannot find the defendant anywhere. And what you're saying is I can't find the defendant anywhere in law because the defendant is a legal entity. So I don't need to say I can't find it anywhere in law. I'm just saying I can't find it anywhere. I've been very, very specific and precise in my terms. And the judge feigns uh, stupidity and says, well, what do you mean? You say, well, I looked everywhere. I looked in the, in, the, in the application forms. I looked in the filing forms. I looked uh, under BDAs. I looked, I went and even got a letter here from the, and that's why I recommend people do this, from the Secretary of State's office, uh, and they said that they have no record of this, of the defendant existing anywhere. And uh, I, I thoroughly apologize. I, uh, but I am unable to locate um, the defendant, and therefore I'm unable to bring the defendant here today. I would like to be released of my obligation to do so. Um, and that basically, in my mind, is going to send notice to them that you know that you're not the defendant entity and that the defendant is an entity of the state, and that's why the state has jurisdiction over the entity but never can have and never does have jurisdiction over man. Does I that make sense? I not that any better, and, uh, it, it, and you hit it right, that nail on the head, and when you said that, my pants fell down to my ankles. Uh, you did another good job. That, that's good. Uh-oh. <laughs> something, too, is that you, you, hit on something, you hit on something that's very meaningful here, is that when state legislators pass these laws, these edicts, these promulgations, proclamations, whatever you want to call that, Without the authority from the people, they're doing it what is called sua sponte, folks. They're all sua sponte. What does that mean? It means that they're doing it on their own accord because we're in the we're in the statute that they said that that the that the acceptance and approval that the public gave them the power. And you said before, Colin, if the people were not present, the government would vanish. So another thing too is when I go on the court, my paperwork says comes now, John Doe, whatever it is, sui generis. What does that mean? I don't use uh, sui juris, I use sui generis, which means aren't you an uh, aren't you a, uh, a unique a unique expression of creation? Yes. For instance, there's nobody like Colin Yates. There's nobody like me. There's nobody whoever these people are. You are sui generis. I put them in my paperwork all the time, and they understand what that means. So therefore, don't call me resident. Don't call me taxpayer. I'm sui generis. That is where I'm standing on my square, folks. They can't butt you off that folks once you make your stand. Stop hearing these people. Is this G-E-N-N-E-R-O-U-S or G- what? It's sui, S-U-I, G-E-N-E-R-I-S. Sui Genesis means you are a unique expression of creation. There's nobody like you, folks. Because I'm the only black guy out there has a third eye in the middle of my forehead, and I can't see shit. I love it. How about that? How about that? I love it. Shoot me, Pappy. Shoot me, Pappy, while I'm happy. So is there something wrong with sui generis? No, because there's nothing wrong with it, but I think sui generis means it hits them harder because when I put in my paperwork, I do what is called a um, a caveat and gravamen. Caveat and gravamen. And that means in Latin, 
warning, warning, Roger Robles getting out of control. It's called caveat and gravamen. That's my notice of a 201D. Mandatory judicial notice. Judge, you get too close to the snake pit, you're going to get bit by a black mama. That's me, mamba. Yeah, right in your butt. What do you do when you tell the judge, I'm ordering you to do the right thing? You're under 201D, mandatory judicial notice. Do your job like you're supposed to. I'm going to come after you. Or you will be picking cotton on my plantation under Master Thompson. Yes, sir, Master Thompson. You better do the right thing. <laughs> That's right, because I just say it again. They don't call. They don't. They can't. They can't pronounce the police and say, "I'm going to call the police." Wait a minute. You say police? Yeah, the police did. I said, "Okay, well, we'll go with that then." So, so what? Who authorized the state to use physical force? of using or calling a gendarme. Have you heard that, bo- that word before, a gendarme? Mm-mm. It comes from the old French. It means uh, it's G-E-N-D-A-R-M-E. It's called gendarme or gendarmerie, which means a man with a club. Who authorized the state to use physical force by using a man with a club and a gun to impose their statutes on you? It's not authorized by the Constitution, folks. Nowhere. You see that? Do you see that, Colin? Do you see that in the Declaration of Independence where they're allowed to use gendarmeries? Or the Constitution that's allowed to do it? No. Where are they getting this authority? You don't pay your, your property tax, and they're going to get a sheriff deputy to come after you? They don't have the authority. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry, folks. Shoot me, pappy, when I'm happy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, shoot, I was going to say something a second ago, and I lost it. Um. Yeah, it's always by what authority, isn't it? That's right. Howard Griswold taught us a long time ago from Baltimore. He came to Cincinnati every year, and he kept he kept saying it. I, I kept listening to his to his tape. I said, "What the hell is he talking about?" He says, "Have you corrected the record? Have you corrected the record?" I kept thinking. I said, "Wait a minute." It took me about a year to figure. I said, "Who has to correct the record? You do." If they say. Oh, call us so and so. He's a taxpayer, resident, U.S. citizen. No, you got to correct it. You got to correct their record because you know what they did. And you're right, uh, Colin. They create a false record, aren't you? Don't you have the power and ability to correct that? Sure, you do. Go in there and correct the damn thing. Again, it's the same issue that I mentioned a little while ago for the people that were actually listening or will listen. That and I just read it. I'm going to read it again because it's real powerful. Um, in this case here, um, and it, it, even though it seems like I'm talking about foreclosure stuff, uh, it's much more than that. Because in law, the thing that's neat about law, the more you read, the more you begin to realize it's all interlocked. It's all a repeat of the same thing, just a different, um, um. Just a different, uh, um, what, what is it, listen, listen to this real quick. Somebody said this to me. I met this this man um, at a store because I opened up a conversation. And it was one of the most amazing conversations I've ever had with a stranger. Um, uh, Russ, I mean, I would just love to just have a sit around because it was the first time that I was able to have an intelligent, spiritual, I mean, we talked about everything. Um, and his his knowledge and wisdom was amazing, and this is what he said, and I and I told him I was going to borrow it from, him. and uh, 
he gave me permission, but I think this is one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. It is so simple. He said, if you have a light bulb and you put a, a, a paper cover over it and you poke holes in the, in the cover and you have all these beams of light coming out, depending upon the type of hole you cut, they could have different shapes, different sizes, and they're pointing in a different direction, aren't they? That's and cool. yet, even though each one of those beams of light is unique and different, the source is still the same. And you meditate on that for a while and just see how beautiful and how powerful that is on so many levels, on a spiritual level. And that's what he was saying. And this, we were talking spirit, and I think you'll get this, is that what he was saying is that uh, we are expressions of the creator. And he said something I've never heard anyone say before. I don't know if I should put it on this recording, but it's so powerful, so beautiful. He said God, or creator, created us so that he could see himself without he, not, not, not generic, I mean, not uh, gender, no he here. But creator created all things that are created as an expression so that he can realize and see what he looks like. And that's why there's so much diversity throughout the whole universe is because there's millions of beams of light and there's all sorts of, uh, uh, of types of light all variations of light and so on. When you take a white light and you use a prism, you now can see all the different shades of color that's within it. It's just an amazing statement when you when you hear that, that the source is still the same light. Uh, the source is still the source. And, and I, I think you'll really get that on the spiritual level. But what I was getting to so far as the legal stuff goes is that the law comes from the same source. Remember, I open up every time I say common law is, in fact, the source of all written law instead of the other way around. Everyone says, well, common law is unwritten. Well, I don't agree with that. Common law is unwritten because it's a concept and principle in the hearts and the minds of, the, of man, but man chose to write it down in order to regulate those that don't have a mind and a soul, such as entities of the state, entities that are fictions, that exist only in writing in the first place. So it has to be written down for those things that are written down and That's those correct. things that exist in law. That's correct, because one of the documents in common law is called a writ of mandamus. Go ahead. That's it, because if they're saying this, they're unwritten law. Well, the unwritten law, the better known as a lex non scripta, became formalized into a written language, and it also had the paperwork to accommodate that. So we used to do that common law proceedings in court in uh, Cincinnati, and we had some uh, pretty good victories from that. About uh, I forgot the name of the paperwork that uh, you're you're telling a a city official to to do um, to do his job. I think it was a writ of mandamus, and there's also something else that you're commanding him to do his job uh, because you're piercing the corporate veil since they're operating as a municipal corporation. So yes, it is out there. It, it is written. Uh, it's, a, it's, it's become a written format, so therefore it's not an unwritten law. It's actually being practiced because if you look at the the common law. Common law is in every state. Example where common law is practiced, look at small claims court. That's common law. Look at divorce court. That's common law. So there's common law courts all over the place. You just got to know where to look. But they're there. They're there. Well, like, like I read right here, in fact, Texas has long followed the common law rule which permits a debtor to assert against an assignee any ground that renders the assignment void or invalid. That's right. The part I'm looking for here, I'm trying to find that quote again, 
is where I mentioned that a um, the party scene. Oh, I'm going to find it. I don't want it, to. It's where I, I, I mentioned before that uh, it's something that is void of bull. If you're not a party to the transaction, which is what they like to state a lot, and I've already argued that differently, but it's, what they're saying on its face is true that if you're not a party to the transaction, then it, and it may be voidable, only those two parties. Uh, can void the, can void uh, the transaction. A third party, which which you are not technically, but you have obligations under. It. Um, uh, so the point that I was making is that you need to void or correct the record. That's what I was kind of getting at when you said correct the record, and it reminded me of that. That if you had fraud in the inducement, you were a party to that. Uh, transaction, and you need to take an action to void it. It is voidable. That that transaction was voidable, um, but if you don't if you don't void it as party to the transaction, then it is enforceable. And so that's that's why I mentioned that is the same thing what you're saying. You need to correct the um, correct the record. I think that's power, very very powerful. Oh, another thing, too, uh, we hear the, if you look at the um, commercial on TV and you look at all the plays, do you ever hear the expression void where prohibited by law? Use that against them, Bob. All the time. Void where prohibited by law. Now, do you, do, you know, do you know a bond that exists in common law that you can create? Uh-uh. Super CDS bond. You ever heard of that? Nope. S-U-P-E-R. S E D E A S bond, super C D S bond. Will someone type that up? I'm not able to. Somebody type that in, please. I'm not able to. Super S U P E R. S E D E A S, super C D S bond. Take a look at that. If you are the whole man or woman, as you say, aren't you allowed to have to file a super C D S bond on your behalf, possibly to get your butt out of jail, since they have. Have, have they corrupted the record and came in there under false pretenses? Yes, you can. Thank you. That's why I go into court and I ask the judge a question. I ask the prosecuting attorney and the judge's question. Excuse me, excuse me, excuse me, sir. Um, I know I'm just a dumb black guy. I guess I just barely got out of fifth grade. Uh, it comes to my attention that there are three types of uh, immunities that you're operating on. What are you operating under, sir? The, the, the judge will say, I'm operating under... Um, Absolute immunity. Absolute immunity. The prosecuting attorney may come under absolute immunity or maybe qualified immunity. Cops are going under qualified immunity or civil servant immunity. If that's the case, can you demand that court and tell them, since you're operating under immunity, since you falsify the record, I'm coming into your court uh, with a, a total immunity from your prosecution. Thank you very much. Going to get a sandwich. How about that? Yeah. That's on the record, folks. You see how much power we have? We're not using it right. We're not asking the right question in order to assert your power back into them. Yeah. What I'm going to do, I'm going to drop that, that big old ice-cold popsicle right down their throat and make them choke on it. <laughs> That's right. Who gave them permission to create the account, and who authorized them to do that? Your driver's license got an account. Your uh, your ID from the IRS got an account. Who who allowed them to create the account? Because I talked to the IRS years ago. And he said, 
What does it have to do with your account? What account did you uh, create? They don't answer. They know exactly what I'm talking about. You're not asking the right questions, folks. So I tell everybody, put your Sherlock Holmes hat on, get your magnifying glass out there, walk with me either forward and then go backwards. Once you go backwards, you're going to get the answers, folks. You've got to keep digging. That's why I call Colin and I the grave diggers. How about that? <laughs> grave diggers. Grave diggers. I've been working on the railroad. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, what's another of my favorite song? A load of 16 tons. What do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. St. Peter, don't you call my name. I owe my soul to the company stole. Remember that song? You're going to to Nashville, man. You're going to Nashville tomorrow, buddy. You're going to Nashville. (laughs) Well, what that's about is that people were hired on to uh, some kind of coal mining or something else. Some some of these slave labor type of uh, corporations. Yeah, that's right. And came there and they didn't have a place to leave. Now this is going to sound real familiar to a lot of people here. That what they did is that they were that they came on to the place of the workplace, which was the property, all the land around the the mine was owned by the company. So in order to be close to the company, and you had no money in your pocket they would forward you credit, advance you a credit based upon your future earnings. But invariably, they charge you your rent, your tent, and you're living in a dirty little tent with these mud, they call it, what are they, mud, mud, mud towns? Muddy, disgusting, filthy. They were charging you for the use of the latrine, water, food, everything. You couldn't, they own the store. I owe my soul to the company store. And the reason is because you couldn't buy anything anywhere else except for the company store. And and eventually everything was done on credit, and so you could never you were always working off of this alleged debt. So you were never on the credit side. So you were basically enslaved. Debt slave. It's called debt slavery. Is what it is. Doesn't that That's sound right. a little familiar to you? Well, what I do, I go in there. You got your. You sing your song. I go and I do a cool hand look on him. I said, I'm still shaking the boss. I shake the boss. I'm still shaking it. And I said. Don't hit me, boss. Don't hit me. I, I, I do anything you want, but just, just, just don't hit me, boss. Let me go. Don't hit me, boss. Please don't hit me no more. Well, what we have here is a failure, a failure to, to communicate. And he pushed my ass down the hill anyway. I said, don't hit me, boss. I, I, my head's right. My head's right. He's right, boss. <laughs> that's one of my favorite movies. I, I say, mm-hmm. boss. I love it, man. That, 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 who told you to dig that hole? <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. He's right. I don't know, boss. Well, fill it up. What would you do? I got this. I'm tired, boy. I can't take it to my boy. My head's right. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot yeah. of truth. It's just, it's kind of the same thing. In, in England, they called it indentured servitude, which at least you had some hope there. There was a little bit of honor there. Um, and that's actually where trust came from, but the people don't know that's where the whole trust law came from is because they found out that there were people who had been working the farm and doing things under the... Um, indentured servitude, which basically you work a number of years in order so that you could own a piece of the land. You could actually own it outright. Um, and then they even had ones where you could farm your own land. And uh, I think they even called that share. There was another one that they did here. They called it sharecropping. Yeah. But uh, what it came down to was um, if the if the, uh, if the owner died or, or left, if they went to war or something like that, no one knew what happened. Uh, everyone was left empty, including the wife and family. I mean, at first they were leaving it to the to the church, and they found out the church was kicking them out of the property. Then they were leaving their property to the to the government. The government was was doing the same shit. So 
So that's when they created a trust. And they put their property and everything into the trust, and um, that's where the whole concept of the SESTA-KV trust comes in, or SESTA-K trust. And, uh, and that's important because, because everyone who went all up to this, oh, we're under a SESTA-K trust, and da-da-da-da-da. Well, hold on a minute, folks. Let's keep reading. You know, like what you keep talking about, Russ. Read a little bit more because guess what I found out? It goes on to say that they are required to put three search parties overseas or abroad in order to find either the body or the living man and bring them back. If they cannot find him, or then it meant that the courts could assume that he was dead. Okay? Now, sound familiar? And they could then distribute the property accordingly. Now, when they distribute the property accordingly, they would, in fact, find out who, for instance, families might have been working for that family for generations, and they would give them the, the horse barns or whatever it was. They would get that section. Those that had done the farming would get that. So it would be divided up. Now, here was the interesting thing. Talk about correcting the record. The issue was that uh, that you were considered dead. That's why a lot of people say that these are probate courts. I don't buy that, but that's what people are saying. Um, it, you know, and because of the all uppercase entity name that clearly does not exist. So that which never exists did not be dead. It just never existed. And that's the difference. Um, so I would, that's, that's, that's my argument, uh, even though they may be doing it probate-wise in order to build bonds and all this other crap. But the point I'm trying to make is if you continue reading, it says when the master comes back and, and basically makes himself known, which probably means correcting the record, then he can sue and get everything back because everything was divided up. He can get his entire estate back. So what that said to me is kind of what you just said. Well, we need to, A, correct the record. I was alive. I was alive. No disassembled. Johnny Five alive. Okay? Actually, that's not how it is. Johnny Five alive. No disassembled. <laughs> um, anyway, so, uh, you know, once you let them know, make known, correct the record that you are man and that the defendant is clearly an entity that doesn't exist. Now they're stuck in a, in a, in a hard spot, aren't they? But it correlates with the case back in the 1930s still stands today, Buffum versus Barcelona. You can find it at 289 U.S. 227. It says this, standard of duty, actual or constructive, under no circumstances or fiduciary obligation relaxed. Well, I hit him every time with that. Excuse me, excuse me. Uh, on the Buffum versus Barcelona, uh, your fiduciary dues, I don't care what you do, it's, no, it's, no, it's not relaxed at all. Your obligations and the fiduciary duties under no circumstances are relaxed. We kill them, I kill them every time. Yep. See, and speaking of indentured servant, I'd rather be an indentured servant than have dentures. How about that? <laughs> uh, unless, of course, indentured means they put a dent in your forehead. That's right. I'd rather have a dentured servant than have, have dentures. Thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Uh, let me see. I'm trying to find this one. You know, as, as much as I highlight, I still can't find. Uh, I love this here. The, the, the Texas common law rule, common law right. I mean, it's uh, it also it mentions in here, Russ, that about uh, corpus juris secundum as well as um, uh, the American jurisprudence concept. There you go. So they use, I mean, that's the beauty about case law, and this is 
Miller versus Homecoming uh, Homecomings Financial LLC. Um, voidable with the election, the assigners, shoes. The current edition of American jurisprudence states the same more succinctly while adding the rationale. The obligor of an assigned claim may defend the suit brought by the assignee on any ground that renders the assignment void or invalid, but may not defend on any ground that renders the assignment voidable only, because the only interest or right that an obligor of a claim has in the assignment to ensure that he or she will not have to pay the same claim twice. Now, here's something in Amjur, 6 Amjur 2D assignments, subsection 119. I did not know this, so I I mentioned it before. I'm going to repeat it for you. Voidable, examples of voidable defenses, voidable defenses include the statute of frauds. And that part in versus uh, Sandria, fraud in the inducement, lack of capacity as a minor, and mutual mistake. Now, what I find fascinating about that is I thought that fraud viscerates everything. But as I mentioned before, fraud does not uh, necessarily viscerate until you, quote-unquote, correct the record and you void it. It merely makes it voidable, but that is not void until one of the parties voids it. So, again correcting the record. Does this make sense? Yeah, and, and look at here, like they said out in Mississippi, look at here. And you're doing that, too. What you're doing, you're actually proving what is called contributory negligence, folks. Thank you very much. Let's get a sandwich. Bingo. Bingo, dingo. Yes. Thank you very much. Let's get a sandwich. Yeah. Yes, sir. Oh, we're not having sandwiches. We're having sandwiches. Yeah, sandwiches. Uh, you know, that means that, you know, if they say down south here, they don't say they don't they don't say they don't say sandwich. They say sandwich, and they say I'm not going to make a sandwich. I'm fixing me a sandwich. What are you doing? Putting a Christmas tool in there? Yes, sir. That's what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, sir. Nine sixteen sandwich. Will you? Yes, sir. I'm fixing you a sandwich. Yes, sir. <laughs> uh, that's too funny. Listen to this one here. This is the court saying. I got it in purple. In truth, the potential prejudice is both plain. And severe. Now, this is the art. There, this is where the court is making it clear that the argument that the only one, because you are the debtor, uh, that 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 you don't, you can't be injured because you have breached the obligation. That, and only the banker is the one who's going to be, uh, or the alleged the alleged lender is the only one, the claimant is the only one who's going to be injured. Now, this is what they said. In truth, the potential prejudice is both plain and severe. Foreclosure by the wrong entity does not discharge the homeowner's debt and leaves them vulnerable to another action on the same note by the true creditor. Banks are neither private attorney general nor bounty hunters armed with a roving commission to seek out defaulting homeowners and take away their homes in satisfaction of some other bank's deed of trust. Kaboom. And isn't that kind of what they're doing in these case, in these court cases? In every single one of these, are they not uh, uh, basically doing the same thing? Let, let, here's their example. MasterCard has no right to sue for debts rung up on Visa card. And that remains true even if MasterCard has been assigned the rights under a third party like American Express. Unless and until a confident chain of transactions back to the original lender is shown, 
MasterCard remains a stranger to the original transaction with no claim against the debtor, and that is a fair description of this case in its present posture. Now, it seems to me that what's going on is that they've created, an, they're, they're falsifying documents, that's the number one, because the entity does not exist, the defendant does not exist. So they're falsifying documents, and then they're trying to make you the surety for, for an entity that doesn't exist or a representative obligated to, uh, uh, to make payment on behalf of that entity. And that's why I ask them, I say, okay, uh, what account do you want, am I authorized to make payment from? I mean, that, that's to me the shortest way. What account am I authorized to make payment from? And, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to do a cross-complaint because if I'm an employee of this thing, this defendant, uh, and I'm expected to do work, I don't work for free, and I need to get paid, so I'm going to go ahead and do a cross-complaint that says that I have not been paid for rent for the services that's being required of me. Now, that would be a valid cross-complaint, wouldn't it? Right. I can't make payment because there's no account for me to make payment from. That's a cross-complaint. And on top of that, I'm also complaining because, or making a claim, actually, that I have not been paid by that entity to provide a service for that entity to make payment. Am I correct? That's right. What he says here, wow, to get a common law court, play the, pay the filing fee with gold, silver, or postal money order. Bingo, idiot is not such an idiot. The only thing is, here's what I found funny, uh, and you'll love this one. It, in, in my Florida uh, tax uh, property taxes, I went in there with silver dollars, and they would not accept it. They would not accept it. Now, at the time, I didn't know about the offer to pay that is refused discharges the debt for the amount offered. Had I known that, I would have pursued it further. All right, what's Money Mike saying? Not to go off topic or anything. Well, we're right at that point anyway, Money Mike. But, hey, Colin, how about you? And I have a game of chess live on talk show. Ooh. I haven't played chess in years, but that might be worthwhile. And that would be good. By the way, if people don't understand the game of chess, you need to learn it because that's what we're playing. You're actually playing, in my my estimation, we're playing that. I've seen it only once, and I think it was on Star Trek or something, where they had a triple-decker chess. They had three chess boards, one on top of the other, on these clear glass things. I thought that was pretty cool. Um um, but yeah, that'd be okay if I can find some time. I'll do that. Give me. Uh, oh, by the way, about Star Trek. Trek. remember when Stock, Spock used to hold that sign up with that fingers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was done on purpose. I find out what that was. What is that? Uh, that was a Jewish sign that is talking about the um, uh, my words. If I if I remember, it has to do with the god of Shanina or something like that. That's what it means. It's a Jewish sign, folks. A lot of people don't know that. There's a lot of Symbolism that went into Star War, uh, went into Star Trek that people uh, overlooked. That was a sign. And idiots bringing up another one too. I've mentioned this. Yes, anytime you sign something, have two witnesses to that signature, and then you can also have a, a verification of your signature and the other two witnesses 
by one of the state's people, namely a notary. So there's nothing wrong with having a notary because the notary now is just witnessing, that's all he is, witnessing your witnesses, witnessing you signing, and as to the contents therein. And the reason why that's important is it raises the bar to a level that they're supposed to raise it to. Um, all too many times, uh, they'll just sign something, and nowhere in there does it say that they swear to the facts here and to being true and correct uh, and right. having full knowledge thereof. So that, that doesn't mean crap. if it's t- Just because it says affidavit at the, title, at the top does not mean shit. The only thing that matters when it's when it's actually properly done and the, and you actually raise your hand and swear as to the contents therein, and that's what a proper jurat looks like. And I could not find one, by the way. I had to make my own. So out of the hundreds of jurats that are out there, jurat is that little deity that says, I, being certified, notary, blah, 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 date, son, da, da, state of such and such, so did witness or is known to me, such and such, da, 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 da. And... Um, uh, I actually caught them in Texas on one of these, uh, the, the same notary on these robo-signers. I said, well, I said, well, wait a minute. How, how do you know this Brian Burnett? Oh, I've, I've known him for a while. I said, really? Do you know him as the vice president of One West Bank? Choke. Do you also know him as the vice president of U.S. Bank and a trustee for LXS 2006? Choke. Do you also know him as the person uh, each one of those is person, as the person, uh, as the agent for MIRS, Mortgage Electronic uh, Registration System. Choke again. So what that means is that they actually falsified the, 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 the notary. I actually told a notary about this, and she sat up. She goes, I didn't know this. I said, oh, yeah. I said, just because I hand you a driver's license, that, doesn't, that has nothing to do with the capacity in which I'm signing or somebody is signing this document. You need to verify the capacity that they're holding and which they're signing. And she was like, holy shit, thank you so much. She was like, When I put on my affidavit like that, what I do, I put on there under the jurat, I put words that, that actually makes that stronger. I put that the information contained herein is true, correct, complete, and not misleading. Wow, I like that one. True, correct, I put, and I said, not misleading. I said, the, the, the document, I said the information contained herein affidavit is... Um, True, correct, complete, and not misleading. True, correct, complete, and not misleading. That's how I hammer it. That's what right. I did with mine. I never, I never, I've been, I've been smoked like a like a gun ever since. I put that on there. True, correct, complete, and not misleading. So you cannot say uh, that is my is that is, is under my belief that, that you cannot say belief because belief can go either way. I said uh, it, you, you have to put something uh, the word that's even stronger. Based on my belief, you can't you can't say belief. You are based on true, accurate, complete, and not misleading. It's not belief because if you believe, you can believe in something made something to turn out to be false. I don't put belief based on my well, knowledge and belief. I'm going to argue with knowledge and belief. I, I'm going to add what you said, but I'm still going to use belief, and I'll tell you why. Because only a man can believe. A thing, an entity, cannot believe. But I'm sure as hell going to add that on there, true, correct, and not misleading. No, true, correct, and complete, and not misleading. Oh, true, correct, and complete. Oh, hold on a minute. And True, true correct, complete, and not misleading. Yeah, okay, I can see how that, yeah. Yeah, that kind of covers all the bases, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yeah, because when you say it's true, correct, 
and not misleading because only a man could mislead. That's right. It, it covers a fart in a high wind. All right. All right. I got it. That, that'll work for me. That'll work for me. Yeah. <laughs> Law offense is a Jew, right? But anyway, yeah, I, and it's funny because on my own, uh, growing up, it was always known that you had to have two witnesses. So uh, they can't do that, and they won't do that. And that's why, because you're raising the bar there. Yes, sir. And, that's right. And, and to me, that's what it's all about. When you raise the level, you can now move to strike. You say, look, I've got a superior. Just like, you know, to me, it seems like the simplest thing of all. Look, I've got, go in front of a jury. Look, at the bottom line, folks, if you're playing um, spades and you've got the ace of spades, you're going to take the hand. If you're playing, uh, uh, what is it called? Um, uh, what is it? Uh, forget the name of that one. If you've got the trump card, if you're playing hearts and you've got the ace of hearts, you've got the trump card. So if I have a warranty, a general warranty deed, which is warranted against all comers, and you've got a special warranty, which means no warranty expressed or implied, which one do you think trumps? Pretty damn simple. And the same thing with a tax. A tax deed, it says right on there and right on their stuff, no warranty expressed or implied. So isn't that, in fact, in writing, a warning and notice to any takers? That's right. There, there may be claims against this. The more you think about the answers, they're just falling in our lap, folks. It's like you just give us a this, this, this step back and pause, and it's all right there, right in front of American jurisprudence. Uh, there's um, Corpus Juris Secundum, then there's Corpus Juris, which is the first body of law. Uh, all that information right there, all that information right there in front of you, folks. And all those principles, which are common law principles, yep. are in writing specifically for the people to rely upon. I mean, after all, how common can common law be if everybody has a different uh, rendering of, of the same thing? And that's why I think that, that the common law is actually written down specifically so that everybody can be precisely clear on it. That's right. And another thing we got to tell you, we got to keep in mind too, is that when you have a the state that comes in, uh, here's one thing I'm going to raise to you, uh, Colin. Okay. How in the hell can a living, breathing man have any dues and obligation to a state? It doesn't exist. Nope. It doesn't exist, folks. Not unless he willingly, knowingly um, agrees to do so. And vol- vol- either volunteer to do so, uh, which I find is interesting that, you know, when you go into the military, you're considered a volunteer, okay? Yes. When you go into any of these positions, you are considered a volunteer, even though you're getting paid. And that goes back to the Constitution, which says the judges, both of the Supreme and the inferior courts, shall hold their office during good behavior and be compensated for their services from time to time. So the whole point is, is that you have volunteered to provide a service, to serve in a capacity, in a diminished capacity, giving up certain privileges, rights, immunities, and so on, and you will be compensated for that service from time to time, which is very different from a contract, and that's why we say, well, wait a minute, where, and I'm, I'm all, you know, where's the contract with the state right now? Here's the contract. 
if you if you uh, went and made an application to create a fictional entity and you have a business entity, you're now receiving something, uh, some protection that the rest of the people don't have, certain liabilities, limited liabilities. That's why they're called limited liability companies. Corporations are almost complete separation. A corporation goes down, and 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 the, you, you, none of your your homes aren't taken. There's there's none of that. Um, so there is something that you're receiving from the state, and you're doing business through another entity, persona or person of the state under a DBA doing business as. And once people really get that, wouldn't you agree that uh, Russ that it'd be a good idea for anyone who wants to be a student? Um, hands-on is the best way, number one, that's the first question. Number two is the best way to understand this in your mental capacity is to go and uh, apply for some sort of a LLC, sole proprietorship, or something else so that you have an understanding of all of the elements of an entity of the state. Doesn't that make sense? Well, it makes sense, too, because when I moved to Tennessee, Tennessee is called the Volunteer State. When I first moved down there years ago, and they said, well, welcome to Tennessee. I said, well, thank you very much, but I ain't volunteering for shit. Exactly. <laughs> you know, they, said, they said Tennessee is the Volunteer State. You know, they got that, that orange flag and a big T down there. I said, well, uh, uh, when I first moved down there, they said, well, you know, the, the Tennessee is the Volunteer State. I said, yeah, thank you very much. I'm here, but I ain't volunteering for shit, so leave me alone. That's it. That's right. See, look, you Living, breathing people do not have any obligations or liabilities or obligations to states at all because states are not defined, folks. They are nothing more than uh, written in the court case that they are body politics and are conceived to the minds of men. That's all. It has no That's physical it. presence, folks. That's it. But I was in court one day, and the judge says, oh, the state says, excuse me, sir, did you see the state fart? No. What are you talking about? Yep. Did the state pass gas? Is the state here right now? I mean, can I talk to this thing called a state? I'm going to find out what happened. Yeah, would the state please take a stand? Yeah. See, another thing, too, another thing, too, here's one thing I was going to point out, too. They pull this shit all the time. They, they, the prosecutor attorney, they got these witnesses they call state witnesses. They can't be. They're not. How can they be state witnesses when they have not witnessed anything at all? Yeah. Such as, I'll give an example. Here's what they do all the time. A traffic, a traffic cop pulls you over. One guy in a car pulls you over, writes a narrative on a, on a, on a uh, ticket, and they said, we're going to call him as a state witness. That's impossible. How in the hell can he be a witness unto himself? It's impossible. So what I'm going to do is that when I get, I tell people, when I tell people what, what I would recommend to do, you get a cop on the stand, and what my job is, what Richard Cornford showed me how to do, is that you're going to impeach his testimony, impeach his testimony. The first thing I'm going to do when I get on the stand, when I get him on the stand, after the prosecuting attorney has their line of questions to the cop, I'll say, well, there you go, folks. Uh, officer, uh, no, Doctor, uh, doc, uh, how about Officer Dickless? Um, did you not just give testimony that the prosecuting attorney just asked you a series of questions? And you asked that, and remind me, correct me if I'm wrong. Did you say that you're going to swear uh, that you swear the truth and nothing but the truth? So help you, loser. I mean, God. He said, Yeah, okay. Uh, would you like to do that again? But this time, I want you to swear that on the penalty of perjury under pursuant to five U.S.C. five five two. Uh oh. You got him. And why is that? Why is that? Again? Why am I saying that? When he swears to tell the truth, what does swearing mean? I looked it up in the dictionary. It says to make a solemn statement. Does that mean that he can enter in a um, 
um, an error in their uh, by so he, by, he could uh, he could he could enter a solemn lie is what you're saying. Thank you very much. That's why I say, would you like to swear again? But this time on the penalty of perjury, pursuant to five USC five five two. Uh oh, I just saw a turd come out of his butt. Yeah, that's what I do. They don't like me in court. They don't like me at all. I said, excuse me, could you go back and go back and eat some watermelon with the seeds? Oh, I'd be glad to do that, Massa. I'm still shaking it. I still don't hit me, boss. Don't hit me, boss. I, I, I don't do not. Just don't hit me. Please don't hit me. <laughs> oh, God, that's hilarious. And so you also talk, I said, I, I said, I'm from Mississippi. I don't rightly know. I don't know. I don't rightly know. I don't rightly know. I don't rightly know. Rightly and I don't know wrongly. <laughs> That's right. I just say I just up there say shoot me happy while I'm happy. Which is interesting when you go to the unanimous uh, declaration of the thirteen United States of America, people don't know this. But it very clearly says that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, what ends? That all men are created equal and endowed by the creator with certain unalienable rights, but among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. By hiring, by getting Negroes to work for you for free. Yes, sir. <laughs> um, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and institute new government laying its foundation on such principles. There you go, the principles. And I listen to the next part, though. Organizing its powers. All right, so its powers are organized and for a purpose. And what purpose is that? Its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect, which means to cause or bring about the safety and happiness. All right, so you got an unalienable right to pursue happiness, which is protected, and the government is created and its foundation is upon the principles and its powers are to ensure our safety and happiness. Now, how many people know that? Well, a lot of people don't understand that when the 13 counties at that time, Massachusetts was not a state. It was called something else. Well, Massachusetts Bay Colony and Providence, which is the capital of what? Providence is the capital of what? Rhode Island, yeah. is that correct? What? All right, why did they call... Massachusetts Bay Colony, but yet they call Providence what's going to be the, the future capital of Rhode Island. They call it um, Providence Plantation. They did that on. See, people got. They, see, they're, they're not. They're not looking what was meant. What, why did they say that? See, when they talked about thirteen original colonies, uh, but Massachusetts was a was a Massachusetts Bay Colony, and then you had Providence, which is called Providence Plantation. They're talking about something else, folks. So. See, a lot of people, they don't even understand what that means. You talk, you talk about multiple separate entities within the 13 counties, and they did that on purpose until they said, oh, let's call it the state of Massachusetts, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Look at the word Commonwealth, folks, and they'll tell you right there. How many Commonwealths are there in this country? Uh, which one? What states are Commonwealths? Please help me out. Hmm. Are they? Wow. Kentucky's one of them. Pennsylvania's one of them. You got uh, Virginia. Let's see, Virginia's a Commonwealth, right? You got uh, Massachusetts a Commonwealth. You got four or five mm -hmm. different Commonwealths. But what do they mean by the Commonwealth? Commonwealth. Yeah, exactly. What does Commonwealth people. mean? The Bunch Commonwealth of, common of the people. The 
commonwealth belonging to the people, not the state, folks. So what they did, they changed it to commonwealth of Massachusetts. No, it should say commonwealth of the people residing therein. They did that on purpose. So that they could take jurisdiction over it. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. But, it, but, they, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can't take jurisdiction over that which you have no authority to take jurisdiction of. So just because they put it in, they, they word it that way, it, this is all, in my opinion, this is all Illuminati bullshit because well, the first thing I'm going to say is, oh, really? Show me the title. That's right. Show me the title where everything, all of this land was properly recorded, was transferred, all the people who bought it and so on from the original patent, going back to the original patent, where where everything is the possession of the state. And then, wait a minute, hold on a second, hold on, hold, hold on, wait a minute. What is the state? Uh, who, who's the shareholders of the state? Who, who, who owns the state? Now, a lot of these you can look up, for instance, the state of something, uh, like you can look up some of these courts and go to Dun & Bradstreet and find out it is, in fact, a corporate entity. Now, I never, I've heard back and forth that a, an entity or a thing cannot own land, but yet they seem to have a title to the land. Uh, can you explain how that comes about? Only man can own land, so how is it possible that a corporate entity uh, or a municipal body or any of these things, a political body, can own anything? How is that possible? Very good point, very good point. I mean, how can you assign a title to a thing? It just doesn't make sense to me. That's why it's called fraud in the factum. <laughs> now, that's not an argument we're going to win anytime soon, but isn't it a concept and principle? Yes, it is. Now, we should have a discussion about that. Uh, it's getting late and I'm getting tired, but we, we haven't put that in the back burner. I found it. I was looking in the wrong case. I, it was in the uh, Vanova case. Bonova versus New Century, where it says right here, when an assignment is merely voidable, the power to ratify or avoid the transaction lies solely with the parties to the assignment, semicolon. The transaction is not void unless and until one of the parties takes steps to make it so, to make it from voidable to void. So the reason why I'm saying that, and I think you'll love this as a strategy, uh, Russ, or you're going to tell me that you do, whether you do or not. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but seriously, listen, listen to my new strategy. This makes perfect sense. We know, as I just found out in the other case, that um, a uh, fraud in the inducement is considered to be merely voidable. And even the of uh, uh, rules of fraud, it was called fraud something or other. So fraud in the inducement is what? Does anyone know what fraud in the inducement is? Do you know? It means at the beginning of a mortgage, when they induced you to sign the instrument under fraudulent conditions, where they knew that they were not loaning anything, they knew that they were going to take your note, that they were going to securitize it, and that they were not taking anything out of their pocket and loaning you anything, and all sorts of other frauds as well, okay? But operating in good faith. Right. So it's fraud in the inducement. They induced you under fraudulent conditions, not giving you all of the information. That is not void. It is merely voidable. 
and that is voidable, therefore, uh, does not allow you to do a wrongful foreclosure. However, let's take Russ's suggestion, but this time we're first going to go and get us a sandwich, put lots of mayonnaise on everything. We're going to toast the bread really good on sesame seed bun. We're going to lather that thing with so much mayonnaise the way I like it, a little bit of mustard in there, and it's going to be so thick you can't get your mouth on it. You're going to chomp that thing down, have a nice little soda, and then you go down and correct the record, and guess what you're going to do? You're going to drop that letter of voiding the voidable transaction due to fraud in the inducement. Now you have done what? The transaction is not void unless and until one of the parties, that's you because you were the one who signed it, you are certainly a party to the transaction now, takes steps to make it so. So once you've done that, you've now turned that which is voidable into void, haven't you? There you go. And guess what? Nobody can now foreclose, can they? But what I do when you when you put your, when you put that extra mayonnaise on the sandwich, what I do, I put a lot of horseradish in there because I know it opens my big old nose holes up even wider. So I've been looking like I got uh, gun barrel shotgun barrel nostrils. Yes, sir. <laughs> that's what I do. But do you hear, do you hear how powerful this is? Yes, it is. Now, that's why that's why we gotta that's why we gotta educate many people about how to do this. It's very simple to do that. Is, well, you, don't need, you don't need Tilla. You don't need Tilla. You don't need to do a rescission under Tilla, do you? No, you don't. All you need to do is give them notice, and I have to find out a little bit more, avoiding that which is uh, um, avoidable. There you go. You have to probably state, hey, you misled, you deceived, you didn't give me all the information, whatever it was, because it, that's, it was fraud in the inducement, and look up the definition of fraud in the inducement. Here, in fact, you know what? I got this powerful computer for a freaking reason. See, it's not no, just in, it's not just uh, far as inducement. You got operating in bad faith, and you got contributory negligence. There you go. Okay, so you have all you have a whole lot of ways that you yeah. that can make something voidable. That's what you're saying, right? That's right. All right, let me go here. I want to do something just for, just for shits and giggles. Yeah, so you're, you're creating something what's called a party superior contract. There you go. Another thing, the biggest thing is that's not done under lawful consideration. Thank you very much. Let's get us another sandwich. Well, 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 slow down. You talk way too fast. Say that again. It's not the lawful consideration did not exist. No lawful consideration. You know, I, you know what I did there? Because I know the courts don't like that kind of stuff. They don't want you saying that because then they get this bullshit about um, the out of thin air theory, which is never going to fly because it's bullshit. Um, I don't care what uh, the uh, that writing of the uh, which they I think they did it on purpose partly, uh, which was the writing of the Federal Reserve. Remember they did that thing. Uh, what was that thing called? Money, 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 something or other. It was. Oh, we talked uh, talk, talk about the um, what the hell that damn thing. It was you talk about that book that they came out with. Yeah, yeah. Modern uh, money, modern money, modern mechanics. money mechanics. Thank you, modern money mechanics. And that basically saying that they make money out of thin air. And I bought that for a number of years until I finally figured out what was really going on. Um, and so, so people suck into that stuff, and that's why those arguments are never going to win in court because it sounds, um, yeah, it's a scam book, exactly. Uh, it sounds all well and good, but guess what? Uh, even if it was true, which in some ways it is, uh, it doesn't make any sense, and that's another reason you couldn't even win in front of a jury. The jury's not going to buy it. However, 
if you go after them in the proper manner and show that, oh, yes, you gave consideration and they failed to give consideration. So what did you guess what I did there? Instead of uh, the way you mentioned, I call it um, failure to fulfill the condition preceding. Failure to provide the condition preceding, which means they're in breach of the contract, aren't they? Right, condition precedent. The condition preceding, which means what is a condition preceding? Uh, The way I explain it to people is this. I have a contract to build you a patio, and part of the agreement is that you're supposed to pay me one-third up front so that I can get the material and I can get my crew together and come out there and start putting the footers in and getting the concrete and so on. Now, here I'm going to expand on a little bit. This is a true story, and that's why, you know, but it also is perfect. On good faith, I went ahead and started the work because you told me, oh, Colin, I don't have the money yet. Uh, I, I get it on Friday. I'll put it in the account on Friday, and I, on good faith, trust you to do that. But in the meantime, a snowstorm's coming in, and I need to get those footers in before it freezes up and it makes a muddy mess. So I go ahead and get started on it. I get the footers dug. I get the concrete poured. And then about a week and a half or two weeks later, I'm getting ready to pull my second draw, and my check bounces at Home Depot. Well, my credit card uh, doesn't work anymore. There's no funds in there. So I discover that you did not fulfill your obligation to give me the one-third up front, did you? Failure to perform the condition proceeding. There's no way that you can sue me for not building you the patio because you did not give me the deposit. Does this all make sense? I, I think so. All right. Let's go back to the fraud and the inducement. The use of deceit or trick to cause someone to act to his or her disadvantage, such as signing an agreement or deeding away real property. Wow, it's right there. The heart of this type of fraud is misleading the other party as to the facts upon which he, she, will base his or her decision to act. Bingo. The deed of trust was signed to secure what? Does anyone know what the deed of trust secures? Please enlighten us. Most people tell you it secures the note. How many people would raise their hand and say, yep, it secures the note? Eh. Wrong. You obviously didn't read the deed of trust. The deed of trust does not secure the note. It secures the debt evidenced by the note. Therefore, what is it securing? The debt. What debt? The debt that must be evidenced now. If there's no debt evidence, then the deed of trust has nothing to secure. And, Russ, would you please tell me, Mr. Failure to Communicate, what happens to a trust when its purpose and mission statement no longer exists? It no longer exists? It no longer exists or it never did exist. What happens to that trust? It's void. It's void. It dissolves. And whatever res was put in there goes back to the grantor, doesn't it? There you go. Now, the fact that there was no consideration meant that you signed the note based on a belief that you had gotten a loan when you never did. In fact, when I asked you, you're going to find out, no, you didn't, but it was because of clever wording and stuff. But even more importantly, the things that they're foreclosing on is the home or the house, which was what? It was put, remember, the house, how many people do not know that the house was yours? Raise your hand. How many people do not know 
or believe that they got the house, and I've heard people say these are educated, college-graduated professionals out there that would tell you that it's the bank's house. I mean, they didn't read the deed of trust. Again, go look at the deed of trust. It says that you are lawfully seized of the property and authorized to put it into the trust. It's called the res, R-E-S, the thing, the thing of value that's in the trust. It's called C-I-Z-I-N, S-E-I-Z-I-N. Say again? I think the word is called C-I-Z-I-N. I looked it up at S-E-I-Z-I-N. If my memory serves the record, that is yours. It's yours. But you have, you have you secured the property. It's not the banks at all because what did the bank give you? So, see, what I do, I tell people this. Play a trick on by, by saying, I'm going to sign this piece of paper, and then on the back side of it where everybody puts the signature on without the bank, I'm going to put, uh, I'm going to put a stamp. Red stamp with three words, paid in full, give it back to him, it's paid. Thank you very much. Let's get a sandwich. Bye. Paid in full. There it is. So therefore you know you're not you are not liable for any payments thereafter for prop for for tag for the uh monthly payments. It's already paid. Why? Because watch you said so. The same thing. Even if they did watch this. Even if they because of the fiat money system, even if they did give you a loan, let's say that they did give you a loan. Let's say that they handed you a money order, not not a check that's going to be that you can cash after you give it to them in, in three days' time or a day or even two hours or, or 15 minutes because we know the power of of the uh, of electronics now, that they can take your note and run it through the whole thing in a matter of seconds. Yeah. It usually takes more time than that. But let's just add the other trick that they use is they will have funds sitting by from other bullshit stuff, but it's not actually their money. Okay, it's it's not theirs, and they're not actually loaning it. But even if they did loan you some money, right? When you give them the note, and they deposit it, did you not now give them payment in full? Because they accepted the note and used it and deposited it. They used it, as I said before, as a credit instrument, not a debt instrument. The only ones that can do, uh, that have entitlement, are the ones that actually pulled some money out of their pocket that they that they that they had, that was theirs to loan. You have to have it to loan it. You can't loan something you don't own. Number one. Number two, they would have to take your note and the deed of trust and stick it in a safety deposit box, which by the way they're supposed to, and not touch it, not use it, not deposit into general deposit. Then it would be still a debt note. It would be an obligation. But you see, because right. of their greed, they couldn't resist. They have to turn around. They know that they can use the note. They know that, and as I said, I'm one of the few people that's seen the electronic funds transfer sheet, that it went into the bank, and like every other check, it went to all the different banks, right, wherever they was t- withdrawn from, whatever account it was drawn from, and guess where it went to? I found out it went straight to the Treasury and the Treasury approved it. And what they do is they send back the credit and the authority through the Federal Reserve, and there's a clearinghouse, and there's all sorts of stuff in between. But basically what happens is there you go. Yep. The, the Treasury authorized you, authorized the Treasury to use some of your credit, okay, because all debts are obligations of the United States, to use some of your credit, okay? And what they did is they then authorized the Federal Reserve to cause – now listen to it. It was uh, it was credit. It has now been converted into funds and put into circulation. 
because one of the people, the creditors of the United States, made a request for more funds needed. It's no different than if you're holding a $10 million of my money and I'm letting you, because I don't want to carry around $10, uh, $10 million or whatever it is, so you have it, and what am I going to do? I'm going to authorize you to take out $100,000 out of that account and put it into circulation, into an account, into a bank account, so that I can make use of it. And that's actually what's really going on. There's no money out of thin air. It's all debt that is owed by the United States to the people because the United States has been bankrupt for a long time, and they've been living on the credit and good faith of the people, haven't it's the expansion, they? It's the expansion and the contraction of whatever it is. And most of the money that operates in this country is is, is literally on um, – it's, it's, it's digital. Currency. It's not money. It is currency. That's right. It's currency. And what is the currency? It's the flowing of debt. And there it credit. is. That's all it is. That's and correct. the only one who has credit is the people. We are creditors. That's why when you go read the tax code and you go read some of the other stuff, you would discover all debts of the people are obligations of the United States. Now, I've told this story a couple times. I'll do it again tonight for those people who haven't heard it. I've done innumerable things, such as with the IRS, gotten things discharged, okay, by using certain techniques, okay, um, and, and using this concept and theory to prove this theory. So I've done a lot of things, and they've been successful However, in every single case, I could not get them to discharge the uh, phone bill or the um, cable bill. And I could not figure out why. I've had like a hundred and some thousand dollars, mortgages, credit cards, uh, uh, um, electrical, uh, water, all of these bills, every single one of them, I could get discharged. But I could never get the phone, or the cable bill discharged. Can anyone tell me why? Who hasn't heard of before? Enlighten us. Because, and I'm going to share the next story, I finally decided to attack, because I love to attack all these, uh, what do you call it, these, these theories out there, and I come up with my own theories to make them work. they got good concepts, but they're just enough in there to get your ass in trouble, which is the idea. That's why we found out that they're being created by them or attorneys, knowing that eventually you're going to be brought up under criminal charges and you're going to, the first thing you're going to do is call an attorney. We actually found this out to be true. Okay, So there is some conspiracy theories going on. But what I did is I took the, the good stuff and then I used common sense and I made it into something that was reality and then I went and tested it out. And lo and behold, it worked if you did it the right way, including the IRS stuff. All right, So... This last time, uh, this whole thing about the birth certificate. And I said, well, let me try my own theory. So I called up. I met somebody through somebody who was in Florida, and uh, but actually was born in Maryland. It's hilarious because I'm in Maryland and he's in Florida. And um, my birth certificate uh, is in California. So anyway, I asked him, I said, are you willing to be a guinea pig? And he says, yeah, because he writes trust. That's what he does. And he had everything in trust. He said, well, i got nothing to lose. I said, and he said, you know what? This is the first time I've ever heard anything that made any sense. So I took him through the whole process, and it took a while. I mean, it was like a, probably about a month and a half to three months. And we went through a whole laying a foundation process, and I'm not going to share it with you because everybody will start doing it and screw it up. And that's not the reason I did it. 
Um, I did it with him because he couldn't care less. It wasn't he wasn't in dire needs and he wasn't trying to get out of anything. He just he wanted to do the experiment with me. So I used the birth certificate in a certain way, uh, but I laid a, a foundation with several letters and back and forth and back and forth. And um, in the end, what we did is finally, after setting up the foundation, we sent him sent uh, that particular department all of his bills, including once again the cable and the phone bill. And, of course, they all came back, uh, blah, blah, blah. We wrote the next letter, which we expected, and I simply said, don't forget what your duty and obligation is to, let me see if I got this right, maintain all possessions of the state. And when I quoted that right out of their own books, what they're required to do, every single one of them got paid including the phone, including the cable bill. And I was like scratching my head for almost two years. I could not figure out what the hell I did uh, this time that got included the cable and the phone bill discharged, but I could never get it done before. And here's why. So simple. It proves that all debts are obligations of the United States. Here I was dealing with a state and here we were dealing with an obligation of the state to maintain all of its possessions. And guess what? Part of maintenance in this case meant, hey, if you're going to maintain something and it needs oil, you buy oil. If it needs gas, you get gas. If it needs tires, you get tires. If it needs rims, you buy rims. If it needs a wax job, then you pay for the wax job. Anything to maintain that thing. And guess what? The cable and the phone bill were things that were needed to maintain that thing. But when it came to the United States, the United States could only deal with debts. And two years later, when my cable bill went overdue, I called them up and it went wah, 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 wah. We went back and forth. And that's when the gentleman at one point sat there and said, oh, that's because you pay a month in advance, which means it is not a debt, which is why the United States would not pay it because it was not a debt. Did you catch that? You pay your cable bill in advance. You pay your phone bill in advance. Therefore, it is not a debt. Therefore, it cannot be discharged with the United States, which is required to pay all debts are obligations of the United States. Did that go over everybody's heads, or did you get that? No. I hear silence. Either your brains are going, click, 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 click. What did he do? What did he do? What did he do? Law fans lost. All debts. Here's why. Okay, I'm going to tell you a quick story. This is a true story. Great. Guess 13 got it. Okay. No, I, I, that's okay. That's a wonderful segue into this next part before we run out of time. Hold on one second. What? Uh, okay. So um, let's go back. Let's 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 rewind. Here's a true story. I bought um, a large building in Oklahoma, not the one that's in that case. Another one. In that building was a hardware store. Okay. When I negotiated the deal. I was, let's just say for these purposes, $10,000 short. It was a little bit more than that. What the agreement was is that I would still have the property, but he 
had $10,000 worth of credit, okay? He had $10,000 worth of credit at the store, at the retail price. So he comes in and he gets $1,000 worth of material. Now, the receipt was rung up, and he then sat there and told the cashier that he has $10,000 worth of credit. Of course, they called me downstairs because they didn't know uh, what that meant or what to do with it. I then showed them. You take the co- one copy because uh, on, on that particular uh, uh, machine, I made sure that it was a type that had a dual copy, one for them and one for my record. And that's how I did my record keeping. So what I did was um, the one which uh, he gets, he gets the original back, he signed it. He signed it. That then goes in the drawer with the checks. I then, at the end of the day, I go through and do my accounting process. I went and looked it up. Here's a signature on the back of the receipt. I then take that receipt. I then make a copy of it. I staple uh, the original into his folder. I then put a notation, $10,000 minus $1,000, which leaves what? $9,000 worth of credit. Now, did he pay for anything? No. Did he pull anything out of his pocket? No. What did he do? He discharged the amount against his credit. Now, he thought he was going to use $10,000 worth of material, so it was a good deal, okay? Because I would deliver it to on the job site and, and so on and so forth. But his plans changed, and he no longer could see that he was going to use the $10,000 in the foreseeable first, uh, near future. So he was making a deal with the church. So what did he do? He then turned around and he created an instrument and he signed over $2,000 worth of his credit to the church. So one of the church pra- uh, practitioners comes into the store and he gets, let's say, $500 worth of material. He then presents that note, that, is, that, that transfer, that assignment, which was signed by him who has credit, and they then use that instrument to deduct out of the $2,000 worth of credit. I asked them, I said, do you want me to create an account for you, a credit account for you? Which means I would take the entire note that he had and put it in their file, and he would have they would have $2,000 worth of credit. Or I would simply take your note, put a line through, and deduct the $500, the date, the time, and everything else, and he would initial it and sign it, and so would I. So now the only thing credit that they had was $1,500. He still had 10000 minus the 1 minus the 2 is $7,000 worth of credit. So nobody along the line has pulled any money out of their pocket, have they? They've come into the store, they've gotten product or whatever it is that they wanted to get, and they discharged it against the credit. The same thing goes here. The nearest count, and this was, oh, my God, it's so old now. This is like, what, almost eight years ago, nearest I could calculate, that each one of us had a credit of between 6 and $8 billion. Between 6 and $8 billion is probably double or triple that now. You, you, you're still shaking your head. You go, what, 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 what? Okay, the United States is trillions of dollars in debt, okay, Who's securing that debt? The people are. They're using our credit, our ability 
and they're using it to purchase things or to uh, as as a form of credit in other places. We are the creditors, and as a result, and this was the big deal. This was the the big deal that went down. Um, that I think it was Roosevelt who did this thing. He said he he thought he sold them out, but I look at things different. Always take a disadvantage, turn it into an advantage. We've just been lied to. Another way of looking at if you don't get that, let me try one more time. Suppose that you're a trust fund baby. What is a trust fund baby? A trust fund baby is somebody who is born with a trust fund because their grandparents left a billion dollars or a million dollars, whatever it is, to this child or this grandchild before they were even born. So when they're born, they have a million dollars standing by or 16 or 20, 30 million dollars, whatever it is, in an account for them. And there's a trustee who is supposed to watch over the trust fund. Are you getting the idea now? You guys understand that, right? It's like a will. So when he graduates from high school, he gets, I don't know, $100,000 or $50,000 or whatever it is, and a car, a new car. So that might be one of the conditions of the trust, and the trustee is supposed to make sure that he gets the car and the $100,000 or whatever it is. All right? You with me so far? So he still has the $3 million or $5 million or whatever is left over minus that amount in the trust, although some trusts are designed to constantly replenish through different investment schemes and so on. So you don't know necessarily what the value of the trust fund is. Well, that's all details. But the fact is, is that child is entitled to all of the funds that are in that trust in accordance with the trust rules, which is graduate from high school, graduate from college, uh, start your own business, there's a million dollars towards your first business, and so on and so forth. And they, when you make a successful business and you make your first million, then you get the rest of the $100 million, for instance. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, see the movie with um, Eddie Murphy. Eddie Murphy had a, a one like that. Uh, where where there was a trust fund um, type of situation. So see the movie. I can't think of the title of it right now. I'm sorry. But it's it, the same thing is true. The problem is is that the trustees are corrupted. The trustees are supposed are raising this baby. They're the ones actually raising the baby. The ones are educating this baby. And the trustees figured out the only thing that they need is the signature. Once you got past 18. They needed your signature. It's according to the trust. Once you turn 18, you are the only authorized signature to get money out of that trust, okay? But what happened was the trustee recognized that you had all that money, and as a baby, you would not even know what a trust fund is. So what they did is he, he did his best to educate you or de-educate you so that you don't know what a trust fund is. You don't know what anything is. You don't understand accounting. You don't understand anything what a trustee is at all. You just know he's like your uncle, so he might call himself your uncle. And in actual fact, so but he needs to find a way to get your signature from you. So he creates all these wonderful scenarios to get you to sign documents, which he then takes as the authorized signature and simply re, uh, takes out the funds from the account because you're the authorized signer. That's probably another way of doing it that makes sense, but you've been lied to and you believe that you're a debtor, a sinner, a sinner, debtor, 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 sinner, 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 debtor, 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 and now you're a terrorist too. You're an enemy combatant and a terrorist. Oh, my God, ridiculous stuff. It's all because they want to lie. Lie, 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 because they want your credit. They want your wealth. And I'm going to go back and show you how powerful this is. Look, 
did not the creator create this entire universe in order to create an earth that has all of the, 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 that it has in order to create us and did it not give it to us? No, uh, Jeffrey, no one has told me that I am interested. I'm go- okay, so now it makes sense. So that's what's going on. And I've proven this several times by doing proper methods. I even called Secret Service about these foreclosures. And I asked them point blank because I've read 18 U.S.C. Uh, 471 to 474, which is counterfeiting, uttering, and passing. I said, is it not true that these people are, or persons are coming into a court with a copy of an instrument, a security instrument, they are getting an order from the court to sell the property. The property is sold for, listen to it here, obligations of the United States. All federal notes are obligations of the, of the United States. They're debt notes, but they're obligations. They have to be paid. And then those obligations of the United States are then given to the party or the, the persons that brought in an exchange for the copy of the instrument. Is that not what's going on? And is that not by definition, uttering and passing counterfeit? He goes, oh, my God. That's why knowing the law is so powerful. <clears throat> That's 20 years in jail. That's exactly what's going on. And he admitted, he says, I can't believe the judges aren't catching this because it's that obvious. That's where plain error, remember we talked about that a, couple, a few weeks ago. It's plain error on the courts. It says right there in the, in the deed of trust that once it's paid or been discharged, that means by the sale or however it's done, they are required to return the note, not some copy of the note, the note marked paid. And they don't do that. I've probably had 15 or 20 loans, quote-unquote loans, that I've actually paid off even though they were already paid and blah, 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 before I was, when I was ignorant. And I never once got the note back. I got a release, Steve, but that's it. Where's the freaking note? They're still using it. And oh, by the way, what about all the copies they make? Which got me suspicious. I started looking in that box with these Remix. And guess what I found? Ain't nothing in there, folks. Ain't nothing in there. There's nothing in these Remix at all. The only time that anything is ever created and fabricated out of thin air is the copies of these instruments, and guess where they get them from? They are creating uh, uh, counterfeit instruments no different than if you had plates of the front and back of 50s and $100 bills. In this case, they're two and $300,000 bills. Okay, they're instruments. And guess how they're doing it? Mm, electronic registration system, which is nothing but an electronic uh, uh, counterfeiting plate Recept, re, repository for all of their members who simply say, oh, I need cop, I need a, a note of this, I need a note of that, I need this note, that note. And then they're going into court and it, with copies of these notes. Some, be, some of them are even just using them off the land records. And they're presenting them to the court. They have nothing to do with it, no, no interest in it, no nothing. And they're presenting to the court. The court's allowing a foreclosure, sale of the property, and the money goes to them who came in with these copies of garbage. Yeah. Yeah, that's what's really going on. Yeah, that's what I spent six years of my life discovering and finding out. So when I explain to you 
now you can get it. That on the other stuff, when I was dealing with the um, with the IRS or some other United States government entity, the only thing that could get discharged against that credit was that which was debt. Whereas when I did the, the birth certificate, even though it, the birth certificate was only incidental to it, it had to do with their obligation to maintain all of their things that they have, their, their possessions, it was considered maintenance. And that's why they paid the phone bill and the cable bill, which are actually paid in advance. So that proved both theories. It was be- it was beautiful because it proved that absolutely they had done what they were supposed to do before when I was like, why aren't they getting rid of these? Why aren't they paying the phone bill? Why aren't they paying the cable? Well, they were doing exactly what they were supposed to do and no more. So anyway, I just want to share this a few little stories with you there because that really I just love it when things get proven out. And sometimes, like I said, it took me two years before, and it was an odd call. It was only because I was behind on my payments that that that's all of a sudden something goes. Oh, that's because you pay in advance. I was like, what? And it never occurred to me. When this phone runs out of minutes, guess what I got to do? I got to pay for a month in advance. Same thing. Check your cable bill. You pay it in advance. And you may even have a deposit there too. So um, that's a, and it's, that's a story. And I see that uh, Russ is gone now. And a law fan and who is Jeffrey? You're asking about a new twist in Shay's case. I am very interested. Please share. Supreme Court Judge Jeffrey, Your Majesty. <laughs> yes, please call in and share. Um, we found some common ground. We can talk about this case without um, uh, without controversy or or nastiness. So let's let's continue that because I'm very interested. Oh, she hid assets on the bankruptcy application. Well, yeah, mm, uh, mm, uh, mm. I suspect that there might have been some of that going on, um, but I would have to see evidence of it. Also, some fun stuff where she put a maritime lien on herself, okay? Listening to the wrong people, probably. A maritime lien on yourself. Hmm. Did she put a maritime lien on the woman or on the person? And given the writing, I find it difficult to believe that um, uh, I find it difficult to believe that it was done properly, and that's another issue. If you don't do it properly, um, it's not going to have any meaning in the first place. Uh, still uh, figuring out what the lean thing was. Okay, never heard anyone promoting that. Oh, I have. <laughs> But again, I mean, it would have again. I take all of the junk, and you can find validity. If she put, if she leaned up the name, that makes perfect sense to me. But first, you'd have to claim it. Or let me see, how would you do that? Yeah, well, you'd have to first. Like I said, you can't have it both ways. Um, I argue that the name does not exist in law because there's no application, there's no form. It's not. Uh, it doesn't exist in the Secretary of State's office. So I go that way that they're falsifying documents. If you want to go the other way and say, oh, yes, the name does exist, it is a matter of fact, it is a, a legal entity, 
and that you have the right use of it and probably have authority to sign on its behalf, which is what you've been doing, uh, then, yes, you could lean it up because, once again, you have not gotten paid by it. So it would, but you know, I, I'm almost certain it is not done properly because wherever you're getting this junk from, usually they don't tell you how to do it right. I've done it right because I listen to what it is that they're sharing and I don't follow it, uh, you know, line for line for line. I understand it, comprehend it first. As they say, if you can't uh, walk the walk, don't talk the talk. And all too many times people do this half-assed bullshit, the same thing we see in case law. Jim Jurcom. Okay, the lean. Okay. Email that to me also because I'm not able. I'm on another computer, which is well. I guess I. Uh, all right. Let me see if I can do that. Hold on. It'd be easier if you email it to me. But oh, the 1099 OID. Uh, that's a whole other thing as well, which has been completely misused. Uh, the 10 o- 1099 OID is a very powerful thing. It is a powerful tool. Personally, I think the most powerful part of that tool is actually to uh, get an accounting, remember, clarify the account, and show how much is, is, is actually they've been collecting or how much they've been charging, and then turn around and forgive that debt, and then under the 1099 OID, require them to pay the taxes on that debt. That's a neat little strategy. <laughs> it's called, you want to screw me? I'm going to screw you. Because no, they're scared to death of the IRS. It's really funny. Okay, good. She hasn't done the 1099 OID stuff, all right. Again, you need to understand the tax code and what the 1099 OID is all about, what it really is about. You can't, you cannot, you know, the, the thing that should be obvious on its face is that you cannot get more money back from the IRS than would be the total amount of your earnings. Not earnings, excuse me, wrong term, income. In other words, if your gross income is $10,000 and you're getting and you're failing out a form of 10, uh, 1099 OID for $15,000, you must, come on, common sense to tell you something seriously wrong there. OID is a way of deducting something and something that you need to have returned because of the deduction. That's Deducting means a portion of. So if you only made $10,000 this year, there's no way you can get more than $10,000. In fact, you should only be getting a portion of it, even if you... <clears throat> at best, fifty percent. If you're not over, if you're not over, probably five, uh, probably half a million dollars a year in income, you probably wouldn't be paying that percentage, fifty percent anyway. And 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 if you're paying fifty percent, you're clearly that, well. That would be fifty percent on your net income, not your gross income. So it's a deduction type of thing. But you need to understand what that is. And people don't. They think, oh, this is a great idea. Ten ninety nine idea. I follow this and that, and I get money back. And they did get money back from the. I had a lady that, that actually went to jail for this. I tried to save her, but she didn't want to step up. We had them. I, I had them boxed in. But once again, she she had kids, and she was looking, again, what we, we saw earlier tonight, where they're threatening with up to 20 years in jail. She says, I cannot be away from my kids for 20 years. So she took the three years. She says, I can do three years, but I can't do the, 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 the 20 years. So you have that all the time. And which, again... Uh, for me, it begs the question because in the Constitution it says the trial of all crimes shall be by jury. So I don't understand how there could possibly be a plea bargain on any criminal charge. I don't get it. It's not lawful. It's unconstitutional. You cannot plea bargain on a criminal charge. It makes no sense. 
all the trial of all crimes shall be by jury. Of course, they can say, well, it's not going to trial. Well, all, if it's a crime, why is it not going to trial? This doesn't make any sense. Court member making money, not reporting it. A court member making money, not reporting it. Idiot, is that, does that have to do with Shea stuff or something else? No shit, court members making money. Oh, that goes on all the time. You bet your ass. Well, the worst part about it is not even just that they're making money. But they're hiding money like crazy, but they're also uh, creating, as as uh, uh, Russ was just talking about, when you get behind the scenes, you start finding out they're making bonds on practically everything. That's how they're making the circular. We've talked about if people stop paying the, the beast, well, it's too late because they're creating money by creating bonds. A woman, um, I have to find it again. It's, it's, it, it didn't... I have to let this stuff, a lot of this stuff go because it's not useful to where I'm really trying to head, which is to stop this corruption instead of just finding ways around it. Uh, yes, hypothecation, exactly. Um, Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.